Welcome to Ludicrously Specific, an audio podcast distributed via the internet that discusses three feature-length motion pictures that share an unlikely or obscure connection. My name's Doug, and my favorite film from 1987 is Wings of Desire. My name's Darren, and my favorite film from 1987 is Princess Bride. Inconceivable, I know. (laughs) (laughs) And my name's Steve, and my favorite film from 1987, and this was a horribly hard choice, is a tie uh, between Robocop and The Hidden. Instantly breaking the rules. Oh, wow, this that's... was my, this, uh, 87 was my year. This I came up with this idea today, so I'm allowed to break that rule because there's You're no way. You're sad for your foot this podcast, aren't you? You're kicking over. <laughs> over so maybe we should explain what that idea is before we go any further. Well, the idea, <laughs> Why not? it stems from a comment I made in our, our lockdown catch-up uh, podcast two uh, episodes ago, where I challenged you two to come up with your favorite movie year of all time, of your lifetime, uh, and mine happens to be 1987. Uh, and so, therefore, our movies today are three movies from 1987 that are rated R, start with the letter R, and none of us have seen before. Ah. Oh. R, R, and what you're supposed to say. Yeah. <laughs> I took, took we'll be a second the entire episode in be a pirate. <laughs> that would have been better if I was in the same room with both of you two. I would have got that. But <laughs> yeah, that's, that's okay. We know it's hard. Um, <laughs> what year did Polanski's Pirates come out? Incidentally, was it 1987? Oh, it was 86. 86. 86. Oh, okay. Ice Pirates. Ice Pirates. That's probably even earlier, isn't it? As far as you say, yeah, I guess it feels like 83 or something. 84. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 84. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're, we're done trying to Shanghai this uh, topic into piracy. <laughs> um, um, but before we talk about uh, 1987, uh, we'll do our usual sharing what we've been watching during lockdown. Um, do you want to start, uh, Darren, with uh, something that's caught your eye? All right. I will. Um, I, <laughs> I've been dead too, so I'm gonna. <laughs> you don't have to. We can skip I, over you. I know you don't like talking about movies. <laughs> I um I saw a film that um called Divorce American Style. It's I can see everyone knows about this one. I it's, think I've heard the title, but I have not seen the movie. Surprise, surprise. Well, well I know about Divorce Italian Style. style. Yes, that's the one. That's the that's the well-known one is divorce Italian style. Uh, divorce American style is a um, it's a Norman Lear joint. It's a Norman Lear wrote it and Bud Yorkin directed it, and it stars Dick Van Dyke, Debbie Reynolds, Jason Robards, and Gene Simmons. Not the one from Kiss. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Disappointed. <laughs> and it's um it's a heck of a lot of fun actually it's um it has a almost sitcomish kind of feel norman lair if you don't know him uh it's created um or took from england but created um oh god i've forgotten it now um the uh What's Isn't he all in the family, or is it somebody else? The one, all in the family, Maud, the Jeffersons, and many, many others. One day at a time. It's um, so the king he's of very, American sitcomania. 
Yes, but the sort of blue-collar American sitcom, the sort of uh, dealing with real subjects and issues and that type of thing, and that's what Divorce American Style is very much like. There's, um, It's really funny, and, and that's something that I definitely lead with, is it's uh, really a lot of fun to watch. Norman Lear actually uh, was nominated for an Academy Award for best uh, best script uh, for nineteen. Kind of unusual for comedies, to be honest. Mm. Absolutely, it's um, it has some really great sequences right at the beginning. A um, a besuited gentleman um, in a a, a long flowing. Um, Tux, etc. Um, uh, uh, climbs up to the top of the Hollywood Hills and starts conducting the um, all the um, the sirens and everything. And it's just, and that's how the film begins. And it's also how it ends is just sort of conducting this symphony of of divorce and Americana, and it's um, has so some is it great... multiple stories that kind of like a LA story overlap kind of thing, or. There's really, a basically it, straight narrative with t- two main characters. A, a straight narrative. It's uh, Dick Van Dyke and Debbie Reynolds have a very rocky marriage. They've been married for 17 years. They uh, um, argue a lot. And then they finally argue so much that uh, that they decide to separate. And then... Um, and then it's through the the divorce lawyers and things and misunderstandings that things get worse, not better. Um, and you've got Jason Robards, who's a um, a similarly divorced dad who is trying to get uh, Dick Van Dyke to uh, go with his ex-wife Jean Simmons so he can get off paying alimony. <laughs> it's uh, so it's it sounds nice really- and cynical. <laughs> it's um it's got some nice cynicism to it and um some really nice surreal moments there's a a great sequence uh, before they're divorced where um they are passive aggressive um debbie reynolds and dick van dyke are silently and passive aggressively getting ready for bed and um going through the motions of cleaning teeth and all the all those sort of things but they're um both very very pissed off with each other and it uh it's just yeah there's some really great moments it wasn't easy to find but it's but i found it and it's <laughs> well with <laughs> you're very persistent when it comes to digging up these movies that you've heard about and want to see and you will see eventually so yeah well, actually uh... with this one was, um this one was just um uh during the lockdown, I'm um, staying with my mum, looking after her, and it's um, she just happened to mention a film that her and dad saw that I'd never heard of that morning. So I um, I looked on the interwebs, and I we were watching it that night. Well done, <laughs> nice, nice. And and what's uh, been keeping your eyes busy during? Uh, this besides staring at people buying alcohol, Steve? Well, I mean, I've done quite a lot of that, but I have managed to get a few movies in because, uh, oddly enough, lockdown becomes um, time where Friday becomes every day. So we've, uh, yeah, we've definitely <laughs> we've definitely pushed our sales up quite a bit as we're in our struggles. The uh, the alcohol industry, good times or bad times are always good times for us. 
Uh, I did a couple. One which I'm just going to just briefly gloss over because it harks right back to our very first episode where uh, I uh, decided to follow a couple of your guys' suggestions and I watched The Crimson Kimono. Uh, Ooh, if you want to hear about that, go back to episode one because Darren talks about that at length and it is very, very good. Everything that he said, definitely agree with. Fantastic uh, film. Uh, and then I watched another one called uh, uh, Rage, 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 uh, Raging Bull, I believe. Mm. Oh, so, I've heard of that one. Yeah. You might know it's heard of jokes uh, every other episode. <laughs> <laughs> so we got to yeah, find it. Yeah, we have to know. What, you like, ha- what did you, you have think to know. about Rage Bull? What did I think like... about Rage Bull? I was going to try and do the, 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 uh, the classic um, uh, uh, Top Gear thing and just go, anyway, moving on. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's well worth the wait, I have to say. It is, you've got to be in the right mood for it. It's not... It's not a happy watch. It is defines the unflinching biography. Apparently, Jack Lovato, when I read up, uh, when he read the, the script, because he was a script consultant, called his ex-wife and said, was I really that bad? And she said, no, you were worse. So ah. he is a bit of a prick, and you do live with him for two hours. But for the cinematography alone, you have to watch this if you are a film nerd. Because it's amazing. It is stunningly filmed i mean and it was academy award nominated sound design did too. Win. yeah what did it lose to i'd have to look that up actually to see what was the oh, uh what beat it but we'll do a little bit of research on that later on and i'll find out and see whether it's any better but uh, it'd have to be freaking phenomenal because yeah the the black and white photography some movies modern movies suit black and white and sometimes you see the black and white and it's just People are trying to be a bit artsy, but this suited. It had to be done in black and white, I think. And once again, it would be almost unwatchable in color. Oh, the blood alone would have, um, you know, the senses would have Uh, fallen backwards trying to cut that. But Tokyo uh, Fist, by the way, Tokyo Fist. I don't think it's by the it's by the director of Tetsuo, uh, Shinya Sukamoto, and it's his boxing film, and Ah, it's uh, as close to a color version of Raging Bull in terms of the intensity of the fights as you're going to get and it's right. it's at nc17 hard because it's just surprise surprise yeah <laughs> um but also it's not i mean that that's a very manic film this is a much more mannered film but the um i was lucky enough to go to melbourne a couple of years ago when they had the scorsese exhibit on there and they had lots of stuff about the um shooting of those scenes and particularly the different um sizes of rings that were built for the different fights because there's all i mean it's not just the camera work it's the sound it's the foley on the um punches it's the Mm. editing but it's also just the physically like that they built different sizes of rings depending on how uh at what point in um jake lamada's arc he was at and how dominant or how um, overwhelmed he was, you know. Yeah, I read that. And, yeah, uh, four, four times as large. I think the final ring you see four times as large mm-hmm. as a normal boxing one to show how, you know, he's he's just become you know so isolated from everyone else around him. Yeah, it's it's as you say, the set design is fantastic. And I've you know Martin Scorsese's films. I've I definitely I've I've enjoyed a lot of Martin Scorsese films over the past, and it's it's pretty pretty upper echelon. There is um, I, don't, I honestly don't know why I never bothered to get into it before, and it just. Every time I did go to watch it, it just wasn't the right mood. And then, mm. you know, it took, as it took four lockdowns to get me in the right yeah. enough mood to, to watch that. <laughs> I, I'll well, say me, I've, I, I've watched it. Oh, go ahead, Darren. Oh, I was just going to say, it, for me, it's I, I can acknowledge how beautiful it looks. I just found it so repellent. <laughs> All mm. the, the I found the 
it's a brilliantly acted it looks amazing it sounds amazing i thought the sound design was mm. pretty damn stunning in this too but it, it the jake lamotta and joe pesci and everyone they're just repellent characters the, I think there's um uh, yeah it depends on what level you key in the film at because I've probably seen it four or five times and I remember there was one time where I just couldn't deal with it and I mean I'd seen it before and I've loved it and I've seen it since and I loved it but yeah I, that time I was just keyed into the reality of these characters and they're just yelling at each other and I just I just couldn't deal with any of it right yeah because I can't imagine wanting to watch that again myself it's uh, mm. i'd seen it once and i i thought once i'd learned that skeets had uh, had watched it that i should be watching it again just so i can <laughs> have a different opinion but um but That's it's right. just... i mean our, our running gag is dead now but i'll find something else that i should have watched right now <laughs> yeah but i just found it so <laughs> repellent but i i mean by your words i definitely i will give it a go and maybe another year or two if you're if you're in a kind of a, a down part of your life you don't want to be watching it i mean i i yeah, gotta yeah. say in the whole movie i have one time when i actually had a a, a a laugh and that was joe pesci shouting over the telephone about your mother sucks giant elephant cocks and it was such a joe pesci line and i went well that's the one bit of light relief in this <laughs> film and it's an mm. angry joe pesci so i mean <laughs> <you can't... laughs> yeah but it looks it looks beautiful and it sounds yeah. beautiful and the acting is stunning it's just um and th the stand-up oh my lord <laughs> oh god it's so painful. oh, oh as, as someone who's done stand-up comedy and has died on stage that is i've seen that before and i've been there before and that's that's when when it's just becomes that aggressive comedy it's it's that's very very cringeworthy for anyone who's been to a comedy show or worse being up on stage dying mm -hmm. on his ass which i have done <laughs> um, well, I'm going to go sort of in the opposite direction for mine, and I'm actually going to mention two this time around, but one very quickly, um, because I've been trying to watch some films that are in beautiful places, because as nice as my view of Onihunga and my house is, we can't go anywhere else at the moment, and it's uh, <laughs> nice to travel cinematically a bit, um, and... Uh, I'm not going to dwell too much on the films of Franco Piavoli, who's an Italian who I really love. Uh, I watched a film called Nostos, the Return, which you can find on YouTube. Uh, and it's a retelling of the Odyssey in this sort of observational, naturalistic kind of way. Very beautiful, set at sea mostly with the occasional island. Um, very little dialogue. And the dialogue that's in there is unsubtitled as it's abstracted from some ancient language. And so... A very esoteric journey. Um, the film I'm going to talk about is almost the opposite in terms of accessibility. It is probably designed for 13-year-old girls. It's called The Island Closest to Heaven, and it's by the director Nobuhiku Obayashi, who, if that name rings a bell at all for you, it's because you've seen his batshit film, Haosu. And... Um, Haosu is a, a fantastic Japanese horror movie that he wrote with his... I think mm -hmm. nine-year-old daughter or something, and is completely nuts. And um, he passed <laughs> away a couple years ago. And since then, there's been this sort of resurgence in interest in Obayashi. And um, there is actually on YouTube an Obayashi archive with many of his old films. And uh, 
I was drawn to this particular one uh, because it's mostly set in New Caledonia. So the plotline on Letterboxd is simply a high school girl travels to the island of New Caledonia and has magical adventures. Uh, it's 1984. Japanese girl. Her um, dad had told her that there's a island uh, somewhere in that area that when you pray is the closest place to heaven, you can talk to the next realm. When her dad dies, she convinces her mom to give her some money to go to New Caledonia and off she goes. Um, it's a sort of movie that I've given three stars, but also given the liked to on Letterboxd. There's lots of things that are self-evidently like, you know, it's very what a family movie was in the mid eighties before a family movie was 53 edits a minute and a billion pop culture references <laughs> and Mitchell's and the machines. And I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying it's very much simple storytelling, a, a girl in a strange land who meets lots of strangers that all happen to be lovely. And even the one that ones that initially don't seem lovely wind up doing nice things in the end. And so she gets to new Caledonia and it doesn't seem like the right place. And then she discovers that new Caledonia is actually a chain of islands and she's on Numia. So she winds up going to these different islands and it's just, um, it was just so lovely. It's just 102 minutes of tranquility. And she, you know, she has a few setbacks, but she just kind of keeps going. And it has that very reassuring rhythms of, um, an eighties kids, kids film and uh, she meets other Japanese people who live on New Caledonia. And it occasionally doesn't shy away from talking about uh, some of the complications of the military presence there during World War II. It's not a completely tone-deaf film, but it was just so nice. And I, I just, yeah, it's one of the things that I felt that um, really refreshed and um, up after, which I think is a, a precious commodity right now. I've got to say he's done well on that yet because I, I looked it up while you were talking and he directed four films in a single year in 1984. That's <laughs> that's impressive. I mean, yeah, I, you know, Roger Corman wouldn't do four films himself in a year. So Yeah, I mean, this this seems to be based. Um, there's a thing at the start that implies that it's based on some uh, 50s or 60s popular book in Japan. So I suspect it's like a Takashi Miike style thing where he went through a phase that where he was you know, busting out a lot of stuff where he was helming the film, but adapting other people's material. So he'd just be like, okay, book me in. I'll show up the first day. Here's the script. Okay. Point the camera there. Let's go. And then, you know, three months later, ship it to the editing suite and go on to the next film. So, um, but yeah. And he, he actually kept working up till the end. He's got a, a film called labyrinth of cinema that uh, is just making the festival circuit now. Oh, um, but yeah, he seems to have had a real peak and yet despite the cult popularity of Haosu, none of his other work really penetrated American consciousness until relatively recently. And even then it's still pretty obscure. Um, I, the next thing I want to watch by him is a horror that I can't even remember the name of from like 1981. So he seems to have just, you know, pursued, you know, pursued whatever was available and done the whole spectrum of cinema from the, um, literally from the sublime to the ridiculous. Oh, that sounds re really good. Well, what was the title of that one again? Doug it was the Island closest to heaven. And, um, 
uh, Skeet, I'll send you a link to the YouTube, uh, both for that, and which is definitely legit. And then the one for Nostos, The Return, I'm not quite as convinced is legit, but it's been up there for a year and it's literally only available via French DVD. So, you know, um, if somebody wants to put a Blu-ray out for it, I will buy it in a heartbeat. <laughs> uh, physical media for life. Excellent. Damn straight, Darren. I think it's time for your uh, number two. My number two, it uh, consists of, of three films, which were my mum's sort of uh, birthday day run mm. of um, of movies. Uh, one started the night before, because why not? Um, <laughs> just fancied something um, light and fun and not challenging in the slightest. Uh, and also a film I've seen about 10 or 15 times before. So it was Nuns on the Run. <laughs> oh, Wow. Now, haven't yeah, seen that in a long Doug, time. I imagine mm. you've never seen this movie. I remember the ads for it, uh, but I don't think I did see it. It has some British comedians in it. It did have some British comedians in it. It's Eric uh, Idle, Robbie Coltrane. Yes, yes. The, those are the ones. I yes, feel like I saw like 10 minutes <laughs> of it on uh, cable like sometime in the mid 80s. It's just, uh, if for me, it was like. Uh, it's, just visiting an old friend. I um, I knew every line before it was said. It right. was, does it have and running it, and running? It does. <laughs> it has of both of those things. <laughs> yeah. It, it's just, um, it's a old fashioned British comedy. The Jonathan Lynn, who's the director, it was um, the only film he ever directed in England. Um. It's uh, the only English movie. Uh, I mean, he also made Clue previous to Nuns on the Run, but uh, um, it's just has a sort of Ealing style feel to it, and it's um, it's just a lot of fun about um, about two um, kind-hearted gangsters who um, are lamenting the old days where they didn't have to shoot someone; they could just take money and run. Um, and um, they choose to get out. It's getting too hot for them now. Um, so they choose to um, take the money and run. And um, there are complications. Um, and they, um, so they end up taking the money and none. <laughs> um, <Hey. laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so they, so this they is why we're to... doing this over microphones via Skype, so I can't slap you for that pun. <laughs> And and so they hide out in an nunnery, and um, it's the th one thing I found about this movie this time around, and I really have seen it probably at least ten times. Is this time I found that the there are some moments where the dialogue is great, and I've and my um, my brother and I have quoted it to each other for years, um, but for the most part. It's not a it's not a comedy where there are many jokes. It's all about characterization. It's all about delivery. It's um, I mean, and that if if there's any actors out there, that's that's the gravy. That's uh, when you can take a line which is dead on the page, and and make it a laugh line, make it live. That's the that's the real good stuff. But they're um, 
but there are also some great lines that, uh, as I say, have been quoting for years. Like, um, oh, well, I still quote it, and I've only seen it once. I saw when I caught off and saw really. Yeah, the spectacles, testicles, wallet, and watch bit. Whenever and watch, you know, yeah, when you, yeah, when you're doing do the that. teaching, too, when mm. Charlie teaches Brian about how to how to cross himself, so he doesn't he puts in spectacles, testicles, wallet, and watch. I still use I've that. I've heard that so confused. many times. I didn't know that that was from. I had a friend <laughs> who quoted that, but I everything he said was quotes, but I didn't realize that was a quote from Nuns on the Run. So there you go. Absolutely, and there's um uh, some look. All you need to know is that. God is like a, a, a God is like a shamrock, small, green, and split three ways, and you won't. Actually... <laughs> what? <laughs> Maybe you had to be there for that one. <laughs> you do, you do. I'm gonna, so, yeah. But it's a if if you just like a, a light, fun, very unchallenging movie, but it's um, but with really good comic performances, I I highly recommend Nuns on the Run. The um, the next one I'm not sure if I've talked about this before, but the court jester, which mm. is a um, Danny Kay film. That, I think you uh, have mentioned it before, but um, go on. Yeah, it's um, it's Danny Kay, uh, Glynis Johns, Angela Lansbury, um, Basil um, Rathbone. It's a great, great, great cast. Um, and it's just um, a lot of fun. We, um, I showed it to mum. I'd already seen it only about two or three months before. Um, but I just wanted to um, show her something nice and light during the day. And then we watched Thoroughly Modern Millie. That's one of those films that I've always heard the name of that seems like it's a fit title that's made up. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> Do you care to elaborate, or should we just podcast. leave it at that? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not made up. It's um, it's a, a big musical with um, what's the face? Um, Billy, climb every mountain. I have confidence in sunshine. Um, Julie Andrews, and um, it also has Mary Tyler Moore in there as well, and. Uh, it's um, it's Carol just, Channing and Carol, Carol Channing. Channing. Yeah, <laughs> and she she is something else in this film, but it's it's a really fascinating picture. It's a um, it's set in the twenties. It's about a um, a young woman who is um, determined to be a modern. Which um, which means that she is um, going to uh, get herself a job, and she's going to stand up on her own and marry her boss. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, um, <laughs> and uh, it's just got. Um, uh, it has James Fox is a love interest in this movie. This is not from 1967 or 68. And so he sings and dances and does a really good American accent. And it's just, um, it's light and it's long. It's about two and a half hours long, but it's light and it's fun. And it also has a subplot about sex slavery. Um, so it's... Uh... <laughs> As most uh, upbeat musicals normally do. <laughs> <laughs> well, they call it um, white slavery, um, uh, yeah, um, 
white slavery, but uh, it's still, it's um, definitely not ticking all the PC boxes. It's uh, it's not woke, it's asleep, but it's um, <laughs> it, it does have um, two... Um, two evil orientals unfortunately um <laughs> one played by pat marita in probably one of his first roles and um one played by uh jack sue who is famous from uh, barney miller i wonder where uh, i saw that well, name before i saw him on the list here and i'm like but who is that i know jack sue's name and i know the photo but i couldn't place it and uh, Beatrice Lilly plays um, the owner of this uh, little halfway house for, um, well, it's a little hotel, I suppose, for um, for the working girls. Um, and um, she preys on anyone who is an orphan, essentially, and um, anyone who doesn't have anyone, they get sold off to um, white slavery. Um, but it's it's lovely and it's fun and, uh, <laughs> and yeah, I love that, I love you go from white slavery to it's fun and it's lovely. I mean, I'm still disappointed that the musical number about white slavery was cut from the sound of music, but uh, you know, time pacing, <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, you I actually don't everything. know if you're joking or not. <laughs> uh, no, I am joking. Yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, it is it is a musical about Nazi Germany. So <laughs> exactly. So. <laughs> It could have oh, gone down. Not every now topic. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! And and to keep things from getting tasteless, we'll go to Skeet. Oh wait! Hey. <laughs> uh, confidence in chain gangs. Uh, right. Okay. Indeed. Um, and a little behind the scenes uh, thing. We had a little uh, audio drop it, so I quickly looked up what won the cinematography award uh, in 1981, and it was Tess, Roman Polanski's Tess, which actually was filmed two years before, but somehow won the Oscar two years later. So go figure on that one. Oh, and it just occurred to me before we drop Thoroughly Modern Millie, it was directed by George Roy Hill. George Roy Hill. Of The Sting and... Ah. um, Slaughterhouse-Five. Yeah, and um, Butch Butch Cassidy. Cassidy. Bloody hell. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. that would probably be a more relevant reference than Slaughterhouse-Five, but anyway... Nice. Well, he also did Slapshot, which I hear is a, uh, one of the best uh, sports movies uh, made in the 70s, and so I've been meaning to watch for a while. So oh, yeah, yeah. to the list yet again. Maybe I'll talk about that one. No, I'm not watching that for the next year and a half. So. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't yeah, we seen it found either, it. so we could do nice. Slapshot, North Dallas 40, and Bad News Bears is like um, American sports movies from the late 70s or something. Nice. There They'll probably well, all have the same sound editor. <laughs> Right, well, I'll move on. Uh, now, my next, um, I'm going to give a half a recommendation for a movie that I've only watched half of this morning because I was watching something while waiting for you boys to turn up, uh, virtually speaking. Uh, and that was Robot Carnival uh, from 1987, uh-huh. starting with R. Bit of a coincidence. Uh-huh. One we actually did, I originally mooted for this podcast, but it's a PG-13, so it didn't fit the, uh, the bill. Uh, it's just too tame for us. Exactly. We could do a spinoff called Moderately Specific. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, it's a Japanese animated uh, anthology um, based around robots. And I've watched about three quarters of so far. And not only is it, I think, really impressively good, and it's probably from before, you know, Japanese animation became well-known in America. I've, I've always pinpointed the next year, 1988, with uh, Akira coming out. And in oh, fact, right, when okay. I looked it up, this one didn't get released in the West until 1991, and then in a, a dubbed and slightly re-edited version. But 
the animation is uniformly excellent. Uh, so far, out of the, I think, four of the six or seven stories I've watched, one of them's been good and the rest have been phenomenal. And the one I just watched, I think Doug needs to see. Okay. Because it's basically done with hand-drawn pen animation, pen and ink animation. Oh, wow. No dialogue. And I'm not going to say much more about it, but it's in black and white, so it's definitely down your alley as well. And, and why don't I need to see it? You don't need to see it too, because it's, <laughs> it's it, it runs the gamut from, it's got a section in there which is, the only way I can describe it is melancholy. It basically uses a a man who creates a robot as a little treatise on mortality, and it's it's very, very good. It's got also a full-on uh, animation of basically Japanese action which is based around it, and then a tiny little section, which is just a little tiny two-minute little comedy bit in it. So it's it's covering a lot of bases. Does it have an uplifting well. section on human trafficking? Because I hear that's Not uh, yet, no. part of Darren's uh, <laughs> I've still got two, two sections still to watch. It's only an hour and a half, so they don't, nothing else stays as welcome. But if any white slavery turns up, I'll add it in. Julie Andrews does the voiceover for that bit. <laughs> <laughs> Odd enough, there's, in the whole movie, there's only two sections that use dialogue. Everything else is visual. And the hand-painted animations behind are stunning. And coincidentally, my son is now watching uh, 2007's uh, Avatar The Last Airbender, the series, on uh, Netflix. And every time I walk down uh, to see any part of an episode with him, my jaw hits the floor on just how good the animation is. And mm-hmm. these free CGI times, just the attention to detail on these ones is phenomenal. And the sound design... On the avatar, I, I had to ask him to turn it down because the bass was shaking the walls of the room I'm recording in. So um, if you hear any explosions or people are attempting to, you know, sounding like a war is, is raging behind me, that's just Japanese animation at its finest at the moment. So, But the movie I didn't want to talk about is less of a recommendation and more of a warning. Um, <laughs> I am going from Raging Bull to Murder Rock hyphen Dancing Death. Oh, I love that film. Yeah, you wait, what? You don't well, like Murder Rock Dancing Death? I want to. I actually want to read a review I found on Letterboxd by one Doug Dillerman, uh, <laughs> saying, uh, "As film is based on completely risable settings and convoluted, implausible murder, murder motivations go, Fulci manages to slide in some nice, nice moments of style amidst the overcomplication and badly dated music. Completely inessential viewing for anyone who need any sort of convincing to watch a film called Murder Rock Dancing Death, though." <laughs> I'm in the latter category where I see a movie called Murder Rock and I go to watch it, and this annoyed the shit out of me. <laughs> what I saw is nice moments of style was just things that didn't need to happen. For instance, if you're in a gym or a dancing studio in this one and it closes in half an hour, how many times do they turn the lights off and on on a strobe light effect to tell you to go <laughs> while people are still dancing, showering, and getting murdered in it? That Are you me. sure you weren't having a stroke? I skates. don't know. Maybe I was blinking too long, but it was just, <laughs> it was annoying me. And then the music, as you say, badly dated, my God in heaven. It's one of the worst 80s soundtracks I've ever heard. Uh, and I've heard quite a lot of bad I was going to say, I consider you an expert on that topic. Like, oh, yeah. If I, if I was on... um. What is that show where you call a friend? Uh, you know, oh, yeah. Weakest Link or whatever. And I got yep. Oh, yes, yes. Um, which, incidentally, if you haven't seen Quiz, you should watch Quiz, which is incredible, which nice. is the story about the cheating scandal on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and has Matthew McFadyen in it. And that should be all the sell anyone needs after succession. But anyway. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, as I say, the, this one, to give a, a, a brief plot summary, 
a group of dancers preparing for a their, their rehearsals start getting murdered and don't stop the rehearsals because fuck it, <laughs> dancing. Uh, I thought the, you said brief. That's a complete plot summary. That is a complete plot summary. And basically, <laughs> I, I just left out the part that it's it's not a subtle movie. There is a lot of... It, I would call it gratuitous nudity, but we'll just call it nudity because everything in this movie is pretty goddamn gratuitous. Mm-hmm. The killer does have quite an interesting... He basically murders with a, a long pin going to the heart, which requires apparently bare breasts on every murder scene. Uh, but it's just the characters in it is after five minutes, I could almost pretty much pick who was should be the killer, but wasn't going to be because I do the twist that makes no sense. And I could also pick that I hated everybody in this movie. I hated the killer. I hated the non-killers. I hated the dancers. I hated the frigging lighting director. I hated all the cops. Because <laughs> the detective is pretty awful in this oh, one. I'll give you that. It's not great. And also, what, just weird decisions on set because you've got every time they go to a murder scene, they bring in a massive bank of of click lights, of, of movie lights, and have them on in the not just off the screen, but actually as part of the set, lighting up the corpse, which I don't actually think cops have ever done. I don't think they've ever had to call out for a rental company and gone, could we get five million watts of lighting, please? We need to photograph this body. So as I say, I've seen a lot of illogical movies, I've seen a lot of gratuitous movies. Murder Rock is not one of my favorites. I have rated it two stars, Doug Dilliman. Art Film Connoisseur rated it three stars. So <laughs> I'm giving you a Decent. warning. This is not essential viewing. Uh, this is not essential listening to. I'm not actually sure who the target market was for this. It apparently wasn't me. <laughs> wow. I, 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 when I saw it, it was uh, with a group of people, and we, we had a heck of a fun time watching that one. Possibly. If you were three beers deep and you put it on at like midnight and there was about six friends... I think and that's you weren't paying a lot of the situation we were in. I'm yeah. pretty sure it was. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, and I watched it after a hard day at work by myself, and I just uh, it, it didn't improve my day whatsoever. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Situational watching, I think, is is the best one. If if you were at a party and you chucked it on in the background and it was a very loose party that didn't mind murder and boobs in the background, go for it. But um, yeah, the like-minded friends and a lot of alcohol might get you through it. I'm, well, that's I'm the only like... parties I go to. It must have murder and boobs. <laughs> murder and it's, boobs uh... party. All right. Around to Darren's place for murder and boobs. We'll do as we served at nine after the boobs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to mention an Italian movie that I'll actually stick up for. I am. Um, we know that Skeet's favorite movie year is 1987, and I've been interrogating this. And my um, my current leading candidates 1973 i'm not ready to commit to that on stone especially because it feels a bit too convenient that it's the year i was born so it feels (laughs) a bit cheaty but at the same time it's a pretty great year and so i've been watching a couple uh films that i have sitting around the house from 1973 that i hadn't seen before and both of them are really strengthened the argument for this year and one's the italian film by the really massively underrated director elio petri uh the film's called property is no longer a theft um uh. you might know elio petri from uh the 10th victim which presaged battle royale or mm-hmm. investigation of a citizen under suspicion which is the only oh, film of wow. his that's been sufficiently canonized to be released on criterion or potentially um the weirdo horror a quiet place in the country um 
property is no longer a theft stars the um, Flavio Bucci, who's the uh, blind pianist in Suspiria, as a bank teller who is actually allergic to paper money. This should tell you the level of cynical satire this film is working on. Um, at some point decides to renounce everything about civil society, basically, and decides that he is going to take everything from this butcher uh, who is a client of the bank. And, um, and so he proceeds to do so. And when I say everything, I should mention that his girlfriend is Daria Nicolodi, also from Suspiria, um, although this was shot before Suspiria. Um, so yeah, that should give you a sense of where the film's going and whether or not it's proper watching for you. Um, Elio Petri just swings for the fences in almost every shot, certainly every scene. There's a bizarre scene where they like going to view security measures and they show some doors that are literally anti-diabolique doors. Like they have diabolique trying to get through and like the gas comes out and stuff. And um, and so there's there's a level of satire and also the part of the really dark um, humor of the film is everything Flavio Bucci's character does to disadvantage the butcher. He figures out a way to profit off of it and gets better as a result. Of and um, yeah, so it um, there's a great Arrow Blu-ray of it. Uh, I blind bought it and I don't regret it for a second, although I haven't delved into it. I think there's only a couple extras on it, but um that's terrific. Um, and the other film that is also a Blu-ray from 1973 that I blind bought that I um, was a film that I didn't know really what um, tone to expect from when I went into it because it's called The Severed Arm. And uh, it's a Vinegar Syndrome film. And I'd heard good things about it, but I didn't really know whether it would be a really absurd laugh at film or laugh with film. And it's, it's neither of those. It's actually from uh, one of the producers of the candy snatchers was involved with it. And oh um, the, yeah. And it, it's definitely drinking from the same sort of, well, it's um, in, it's notorious because obviously the title and the setup is basically these five friends go caving as you do and they get trapped. And after like a week, they decide to draw lots and whoever draws the shortest lot will get their arm cut off and they'll feed on it to stay alive until someone rescues them. And they do this and um, literally like, I think like seconds after they sever the arm, like they get oh, discovered. Boy. And so they come, <laughs> they come up with a um, cover story. The fellow with a severed arm winds up in a mental hospital. Everyone else is like, oh, I got caught up. Yeah got crushed in the fall. We don't know. And then, um, and then as the movie starts, one of the four survivors gets a, um, i sorry. One of the five survivors gets the, um, severed arm sent in the mail. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it very quickly becomes something that at the start, it seems like, particularly with one character who seems a bit OTT, that turns out he's a wacky radio broadcaster, and that's why he's um, billed as the madman in the credits. I thought they were spoiling who the killer was. But, uh, <laughs> just, yeah, the late-night madman DJ. There's a 20-minute um, section in the middle of suspense that is really just so well done. And um, 
and it, yeah, as with the candy snatchers, it just has this sort of grimy, you know, it's obviously shot on whatever locations they could find very quickly. You know, that's, there's not a huge amount of panache, but there is a sense visually that, you know, they're, they're coming up with cleverer angles and they need to, um, yeah, it, it was something I, I was really pleasantly or maybe unpleasantly in terms of like how it, how it registers, but you know, it was, it was a really good surprise in terms of the level of quality. It's like, it's kind of like a really good telemovie sort of level of production um, rather than kind of a laughable slapdash horror, which it kind of looks like when you look at the poster. It could also be a slapdash horror because according to the IMDb, there's a, an 89-minute edited version was released in 1985 on video in which, quote, the gore was completely and haphazardly edited out. So that sounds wow. like uh, if you saw that version, you would be, uh, you'd never watch it again. A great, um, very wordy tagline there. Five victims cannot stop him, cannot escape the slashing fury, the sound of terror, his trademark, the severed arm. Yeah. And, yeah. The, it, wow. It's a great it, pulp premise, and it's interesting how... It's not like that it it isn't pulpy, but it's not just pulpy. Right. Gotcha. Well, that sounds really interesting. I'd definitely like to have a look at that one. Yeah, I've been saving it for a um, group viewing, but since God only knows when we'll be able <laughs> to do those again. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I'd be happy to give it another look. It also has what, um, in an interview with the producer on the um, Blu-ray, somebody says it's the very first electronic score. I doubt that's true. But um, it is a really uh, interesting uh, electronic get, synth um, score. Only if you completely ignore Forbidden Planet, I think. Um, right. Because that was a synthesized score. And I'm pretty sure that was the, the, one of the first ones of my sci-fi nerdiness has not let me down, although I'm sure someone will correct me if I have. But I'm, I'm mm. definitely As, a, as an aside, things. that's another amazing thing about property is no longer a theft is the Enya Morricone score. Nice. Um, everything that Morricone did with Petrie, he's like really pushing out his experimental side and yet still, um, yeah, still kind of a bit grounded. And um, it, there's really just a lot of ama- amazing, tense, somewhat experimental, but still um effective music in those petri films and oddly enough uh you'd think i wouldn't have but i have seen a petri film because uh, one of our friends on one of our choose your own adventure days where ron brings a film and there's no veto bought the 10th victim uh yeah. about a couple of years ago i think and really enjoyed that it's, it's mm. an, an odd duck of a film at times being being kind of mm. futuristic but surreally futuristic and I remember really enjoying that. And it's one that's been in the back of my head mm. to go back and rewatch when I'm not watching sort of seven other movies around it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah fair enough. And so uh, my um, final lot, um, I recently purchased um, uh, the John Hughes Blu-ray box set. Got a whole <laughs> bunch of um, really interesting films in there. And two of which I'd never seen, which is now not the case. So um, uh, I've now seen some kind of wonderful, and she's having a baby. Wow, I've um, seen she's having a baby, but not some kind of wonderful. I've seen uh, something wonderful, but not she's having a baby. I had to watch something wonderful because my wife and I actually danced to one of the songs from the soundtrack at our wedding and had to 
learn how to choreograph because I thought I was just going to learn how to just learn some basic steps and it turned into basically a competition routine because why not? <laughs> so uh, whenever I hear the uh, Irish version of Can't Stop Falling in Love with You yes. uh, off that song, uh-huh. I flash back to that. My one my one moment of dancing triumph, even though I nearly tripped over a uh, three-year-old that walked out on the dance floor. I just butted him out of the way and kept going. So he wasn't interrupted. That's, <laughs> that's the spirit. <laughs> well, Some Kind of Wonderful is... Um, it's written by John Hughes and directed by Howard Ducht, or however he's pronounced. I believe it's the same for um, Pretty in Pink is um, not directed by John Hughes. It's written by and, and directed by Howard Ducht, or however it's pronounced. I'm going to go but with Deutsch, but just being an American, that would be my hunch. <laughs> yep, fair enough. Um they're both really good films, very different to each other. Some Kind of Wonderful is a teenage angst opus. Um, and it's it's just great and really quite emotional. It's um, got a it's uh, Eric Stoltz and um uh, Leah, oh God, I'll have to do the IMDb lookup. The Leah Thompson, I think it is. Oh, yep, yep. Well, there's, uh, that, if it's 1980s and it starts with Leah, it's almost certainly Leah Thompson. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. And um, and and Mary Stuart Masterson is the other one. And it's um, basically Eric Stoltz is a. Um, he uh, loves art. He works in a garage um, when he's not attending school. And uh, he is deeply into Leah Thompson's character. His best friend is Mary Stuart Masterson, who is secretly in love with him. And Leah Thompson's. Um, oh, is she a drummer? Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. I've heard of it for that reason. I'm not surprised, of course. And yeah, and Leah Thompson is going out with Craig Sheffer, who is a total asshole. um, And and probably the only one-dimensional character in the movie. Everyone else just has little moments of depth. It's... um, And John Ashton uh, plays um, plays the father in this. John Ashton from Midnight Run and... uh, Beverly Hills Cop, and um, Elias Cotius plays a, uh, a character called Skinhead, <laughs> who is really fun. He's he's like the um, dropout bully who turns out to be a little bit nicer and a little bit that's uh, a little bit more of a human being than he first appears. But it's um, it's it's. Just a a really, really nice, quite emotional heart tug of a film. Have you seen Exotica, by the way? um, No, it's the Elias Cotius one again, isn't it? Yeah, that's why I brought it up, because it's a rare kind of um, center stage uh, sort of performance for him. You know, he's so often a supporting actor. Um, And yeah, he's... He's at the heart of that film. And so, and the other is she's having a baby. And that's uh, Elizabeth McGovern and Kevin Bacon. And um, 
that's a really fun film. It, 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 quite different. It's it is much more of a comedy than some kind of wonderful. She's having a baby. Is um, Kevin Bacon is a um, a writer or trying to be a writer. He's um, marrying uh, married Elizabeth McGovern. His best friend is a sleazy Alec Baldwin who um, had a past relationship with Elizabeth McGovern. And, um, but the, one of the really interesting things about the film is that we see inside the mind of Kevin Bacon's character. So there are lots of surreal moments. It's um, along the way. It's, um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Not a lot of story to this one other than uh, just um, becoming a, um, it's growing up, I suppose, having a having a wife and having um, having more responsibilities and all those types of things. Yeah, as I say, I don't think I've seen that one. I may have, uh, you know, I know, um, you know, Dawn's watched a lot of these ones in the past. So I may have come across it, but I definitely have uh, seen some kind of wonderful, and I, I, I assume some kind of wonderful is better because why it came from nineteen eighty seven. Uh, although admittedly it was beaten at the box office, I know by Benji the Hunted and Jaws the Revenge, so um, probably have more. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> but I'm pretty sure it had a much better life on VHS because it would have been rented over and over again by teen girls in the eighties. So that's ludicrously specific. <laughs> <laughs> I think at the time it fell into that like John Hughes is the guy who makes teenage movies, and it was a bit grown up for teenagers and. Yeah. And grown-ups were like, oh, he's the teenage guy. The so, teenage I, guy, so, yeah. Yeah, and I remember I saw it, and I didn't quite get it, because I think there's a key moment. Like, almost literally the only moment I remember in it is I think she pushes a birth control pill down the um, sink drain instead of taking it. And I'm not sure I knew what that was until I asked my dad about it afterwards. So, like... She's having a baby, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's yeah. It's uh, yeah. There's um, she's having uh, having a baby. Does have um, a strange, huge amount of uh, cameos right at the end of the movie in the credits. It's um, which um, with uh, there's Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray and John Candy and Magic Johnson. Yeah, it's quite a quite a surprise, which I've just ruined. But there you go. It's like. That's right, because I, I looked it up and looked up some pictures from it while we were talking, and it didn't show any of those, but it did. Uh, it does appear on cinemacats.com showing a cat trying to eat uh, off uh, Kevin Bacon's fork. So that's for that best scene in the movie for me there. So thanks, cinemacats.com. I don't even remember that moment. <laughs> <laughs> People at cinemacats.com don't remember that one, all right? So. <laughs> all right, is it on to me? It, it is. is. It is. Now, um, before we go into the ones I've watched, the upcoming things I've uh, been noticing, uh, a trailer came out for what I think is going to be the movie of 2022 or whenever it comes out. Uh, and no, I'm not talking about The Matrix. Uh, although The Matrix trailer, I've got to say, I it, it felt like uh, something I would watch. I remember, you know, I've loved The Matrix. I've loved the second one, even though I will admit it gets disappears up its own ass. The third one I've only watched twice, I think. That's and, twice more than I have. Yep, but yep. I'd have to rewatch it again. Well, the third one starts in its own ass. It basically and, does. Um, and it disappears yeah. further up. 
at first despairs and kind of inverts everything uh, and so it's just basically a black hole of of pretentiousness but um but and, even uh, this was it was a it was fine i didn't i don't hate it but i'd have to i you know i just haven't watched it for so long i'd probably have to rewatch it to remember what happened you know it looks like it's going to be in the same sort of spirit um i do love um the one scene that no one's talking about and maybe one or two people on twitter that pointed out that Keanu Reeves has got a rubber duck on his head in his bath. Uh, <laughs> Everyone's talking bath. about that, aren't they? Oh, that's, well, not, not on my Twitter feed. They're all talking about everything else. But um, I did like that shot. That's that's very Keanu. The mm-hmm. trailer that has really piqued my attention, and you're going you're gonna to know what it is when I say the words Vinegar Syndrome, because Vinegar Syndrome <laughs> Blu-ray company is now retrieving a movie from the 1980s that was not quite finished had no soundtrack, are redumbing it with some of our favorite actors, and it's called New York Ninja. And I am so fucking there for this one because I have yeah, not heard of this. I saw the trailer. I'm with you. Yeah, it basically, if you go north from from Miami Connection, you meet New York Ninja. Is what oh, it looks wow. like. And the yeah, I, I haven't got the the list of of voice actors up there, but there is. There are some good ones coming up on that. It's uh, It looks, it, basically all I'm going to say is go and watch the trailer right this minute. Pause this, go and watch it, come back and tell me I'm right. I'm Can right. I pause this and go and do that? It's, uh... <laughs> we, we will let you watch it afterwards, but I'll send you the link. Oh, okay. So, it's so New York it's Ninja. one rule for one and one rule for everybody else. <laughs> You've got plenty of time. This, this episode won't go up for <laughs> days now. you got time. So. Oh, also, if this movie gets a chance to ever appear on a large screen, Matt or Ant, um, I will pay real money to see it. I will pay real money. I'll pay Darren's money to see this, okay? <laughs> He'll leave his house. <laughs> <laughs> Any, anytime you want to get a copy of that and just let us know. Even if it's just after hours, we'll be there. Yeah. But um, moving on, the last couple of movies I watched, because I do have a couple. I watched, I think, about eight movies, so I'm not going to go through the ones in depth, but uh, after you guys went and saw it on the big screen, I went and rewatched Capricorn One, uh, which oh. holds up incredibly well. Uh, so really did like that one. Just watching that on the small screen. Uh, Cinema Z, we did the Omega Code, which is um, well, basically, if you imagine a big budget uh, Bible movie, uh, which adds a lot of very, very, very nineties special effects. And is led by Casper Van Den as pretty much Casper Van Den. He's he plays a kind of a, a a TV faith healer, priest, expert on theology, mythologist, world renowned, of course, because those sort of people, of course, are on the front pages of all the newspapers on everyone's lips. Who discovers that the end times are coming, and then the movie goes completely batshit insane. And it's it's, it's they spent eight million dollars on this in nineteen ninety nine. And then did a sequel, and they got a $20 million budget for it. And apparently that's even more insane. So I will be looking up the Amiga Code 2 hyphen Megadoo as soon as possible. It's a movie that is so insane, it gets to the final scene, and even the movie goes, fuck it, we don't know what happened. The end. It's uh, <laughs> Everything happens. At one certain point, there's a, a one line where a meteorite hits, I think, Hong Kong. Three million dead, and as a meteorite hits Hong Kong. And now sports, basically. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, it's a huge world-spanning thing that just gets too big for its boots. And if you're, if you're a Bible person, good luck with believing that. Uh, but if you believe that, you are 
you are definitely on the extremes of 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 biblical thought. And if you're not a Bible person, it's just fucking hilarious. I'm telling you, Casper Van Dyn has never looked better. It's 1999. He wears suits which are black shirt, black jacket, and then changes to charcoal shirt, charcoal jacket. It's it is the 90s, the end of the 90s, just dying a slow death before our eyes in massive over the top effects. But does so he have any shower with, scenes like? In, troopers? No, he does not. I, I guess the I guess that wouldn't have flown when you were showing that at the to the church youth group. Uh, you know, <laughs> so apparently, it was incredible. It was shown repeatedly on um, things like the Trinity Broadcasting Network in the two thousands. The uh, the Christian networks in America it was just constantly played. But it is just a wonderful bit of nineteen ninety nine. It's the millennium's coming. We're all going to die further. So um, definitely have a look at that. Uh, the other two I watch. I'm trying to decide which one I should talk about more. Do you would Sunny Sunny Cheaper uh, is one, and the other one is Robert Mitchum. Which would you prefer me to go? Sunny Cheaper. I'll oh, talk Sunny about Ch- both. Both. Well, we'll start off with Robert both. Mitchum. Friends of Eddie Coyle, which I've had for a while. Oh, oh yeah. Ooh, I like the O's. Yes, I know you both like this because I've seen your reviews. I haven't seen it actually, so oh, yeah. um, oh, that's I've, that's my yeah, I found Doug's review on on the box office uh, on, uh, on Letterbox, and yep. we gave it the same review, four stars. It is, it's very nineteen seventies grim, but it is watchably grim. I mean, you're looking, you got Robert Mitchum, Peter Boyle, Richard Jordan, Stephen Keats, Alex Rocco in an excellent part, and Alex Rocco is always one of those supporting actors that, when he's there, he's such a a solid character actor that you know you're in for a good time. But, um, yeah, basically an aging hood about to go back to prison, tries to escape his fate, and doesn't actually Fails. work. Things go, <laughs> things go downhill. Fails pretty pretty spectacularly. Um, I quite like it because um, there's just that, that 70s vibe of, of things are going to shit, and there's, no matter what you do, nothing's really going to change that. And so it's, I'm not going to go into detail on it because it is, it's something you have to watch. I actually had a copy for quite a while. I never got around to watching it and put it on. 1973, just by the way, just saying. 73, yes. Good year. Good year for, for movies and people being born. So <laughs> <laughs> so I join in that. So Friends of Eddie Coyle is a, is a definite recommendation from me. The Bullet Train is a recommendation with a caveat, which is, uh, I don't know if I can pronounce that properly, but. Um, caveat. Caveat, that's the one, here with the caveat. So it is, if you are a fan of Shin Godzilla, you're going to like the bullet train. <laughs> are there lots of job titles on screen? There is a lot of meetings. There is a, there is, oh, there's a whole set <laughs> of job titles. Yes, we meet um, all the characters around a boarding, uh, boardroom table at one stage and everyone gets their job title comes up. But it's, in effect, the bullet train is what speed was derived from. So a uh, group of... Uh, well, they think terrorists originally. It's not. It's people that just want money. Uh, plant a bomb on a bullet train that's traveling at 300 kilo or 200 kilometers an hour. If the train slows below 80 kilometers an hour, it explodes. So basically, you've got speed on rails. Right. And Sonny Chiba is, I think, I think that's cocaine. <laughs> Sorry, speed on. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I missed the joke there entirely. In the joke was that it was cocaine. <laughs> I get it now. Gotcha. <laughs> now, Sonny Cheaper, he passed away just uh, recently, so I watched that one. His second build, he literally appears at the start of the movie, vanishes for close to an hour, and comes back at the end. And it's a role I've never really seen him in. He's he's a man completely out of his depth. He plays the train driver. And in every oh, Sonny Cheaper movie I've seen where he is 
the main star. He is taking names and kicking ass and ripping out throats. There's He's a force of, of nature. And in this one, he's a man in a situation where everything is happening around him. He's relying on other people to pull his ass out of the fire. And he's not coping very well with it. Ken uh, Takakura is actually the main star. But ah. it's, it's a, it is a huge ensemble movie. There's a big cast. I mean, it's two and a half hours long. This is definitely... If you did speed it two and a half hours long, it would have probably outstayed its welcome. This one doesn't so much. It, if you can handle a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of people, a lot of people talking about plans and then trying them and then have, coming back and talking about others, you'll actually really enjoy the film. It's near the end. It starts to do a, a few, a couple of times something could go wrong where it's just kind of like that came out of nowhere just to extend the the drama on. You know, this could have end of the movie right here and then oops the place you're going to just burnt down that's a shame that didn't explain how that happened but um up to that point i mean it is a, it's actually a really compelling watch for for the the length of time that you have, uh, have to commit to it and the concentration you have to put on it because you think it's the bullet train and you see the, the poster of it showing the bullet train with explosions yeah. coming off it and you think it's a big action film and it's really not it's more of a a, a drama with action elements well, it's good to know because I picked up the DVD recently and I, um, yeah, I was expecting action. So yeah, uh, I, I think you guys both know I've been focusing on train movies this year for yeah. some damn reason. I don't know why. Do you think Speed would have been better if it had a few more board meetings in it? Is that <laughs> the, uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would I would have loved to see the bit where they just go, just 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 keep going around in circles for a bit. And then we come back for 15 minutes of them discussing options and uh, <laughs> <laughs> or Keanu Reeves doing paperwork <laughs> on the train, just just pulling out a primitive laptop and, and tapping away. They're going now. Okay, I'm just going to check out how 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 much we have to slow down to. <laughs> and now the joy of filing. And Doug, I know you're a Shin Godzilla fan, and I, I think you'll really enjoy. It. I think it will be in your uh, in your. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Cool. I look forward to it. Um, I'll close out with. Um, two films as well i was just going to do one but the fact that you brought up the sunny chiba tribute uh reminded me that i watched a uh belmondo tribute because of course uh just recently uh we lost the star of uh many french films including breathless uh jean paul jean paul belmondo and uh so i happened to have a film that was shot the same year as breathless on my uh, shelf a french crime film called uh class two risks or the big risk because you know if you're making a film noir it has to be the big something um and so i put it on uh, it's by claude saute who i'm not very familiar with um but it's written by a guy named jose giovanni who actually was a um ex-criminal who uh the true and um some of the jean-pierre melville and he he, so he's done a quite a written quite a number of top tier french crime films but for the first 20 minutes um lino ventura who's an italian who grew up in france has committed some crimes in milan and he's trying to get away with his wife and jean paul belmondo's not in the film at all i'm like well this was a really this is a good film but i feel bad for choosing it for a uh, memorial <laughs> viewing when, and, and and it's a testament to um what it means to be a movie star, because about 20 minutes in um, Ventura's uh, colleagues in Paris need to find somebody 
to rescue him from the south of France and drive him back. And they get uh, Eric Stark, who's played by Jean-Paul Belmondo. And literally, it's that sort of moment in the film where an actor shows up and says, hey, you guys have all done good, but this is my film now. Go home. And <laughs> and it literally pretty much is that. And, and Lino Ventura is a big screen presence. I wasn't very familiar with him at all, um, but he seemed familiar. And I realized I'd seen him in um, Army of Shadows and uh, Touche Pao Grisby. Uh, and he's also an elevator to the gallows. But um, just um, and he could totally hold the screen, but Belmondo's charisma is just so off the charts through the whole thing and takes the movie into all sorts of unexpected directions. And it it even usually with crime movies, like if there's a slackening in the central tension, it can sink the whole movie. Um Whereas here, it's just like it can it can go into these sort of um, observational kind of places. And because you just wa- love watching Belmondo, you go with it. So um, I actually felt a little bad when Belmondo died because it was one of those, oh, that's sad. Also, I hadn't realized you were alive, but he'd had a stroke, um, I think, almost 20 years ago. And so he hasn't appeared on screen for a long time. I think his last role was in 2008 as a character who was afflicted uh, in some way. And I think in real life he was heavily afflicted by a stroke. And then that was his last appearance. So um, you can be forgiven for not realizing that he had still um, been around this whole time, but um, he has such a terrific back catalog and uh, I'm looking forward to dipping into more of that. The well, I'm other, gonna con- I'm going to make a confession here because I double-checked this while you were talking. Even though I know the name, and I've seen a lot of his posters that pop up on my Pinterest feed because I get a lot of because of the action films that he did, because he, he really went from new wave films to later on doing actual action films in the 80s, uh, I've never seen a Belmondo film, apparently. And I've had about three of them bookmarked on different streaming services because I did not know until he passed away when on my feed a lot of people started posting some GIFs. He was doing his own stunts and his action films. So oh, yeah. Some of the shots from the professionals and the burglars are just um, some next level. And I I was one of those people who tweeted that um, great uh, cut down of some of his great work. From and, those yeah, I was on my jaw just at the floor because, as I say, I'd seen these different posters of it. But looking back, I've literally never seen one of his films. And I've got, as I say, quite a few of these these later action ones on them. I'm sure at some stage at a Sunday cinema, someone's going to throw on one of his new wave films and make me watch one yeah. of his new wave films. And I probably will quite enjoy it, but it's it's yeah. not what I would be grabbing myself. He was but, also a guy that never went to Hollywood. So that's one of right. the things that, you know, some of the um, actors went on that from France would go on and like, you know, be international stars. And he just stuck with the French film industry. And for better or for worse, it means that he didn't get those kind of roles as like I Jean Renault is the first name that comes mm. to mind, although he's a different generation. But he did have um, a very minor role in Casino Royale. So oh yes, that's true, which I think the, is literally uh, the, the original only one, one of his films on a streaming service in New Zealand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of the ones I saw quite some time ago, must be 10, 20 years ago now, is was um Cartouche which is really good. 1962. He, uh, 
he plays a um well a thief a gentleman thief really um and it's a lot of fun 18th century um based film yeah my favorite of his um films with godard is uh perel le fou uh which is godard's uh samuel fuller appears in the start of it and it's sort of a um Obviously, this is the film that was made after, but it's sort of a similar kind of Badlands setup where it's a couple on the run having committed crimes and stuff. Um, and it integrates um, Godard's love of subverting genre trope with more political statement. And um, I really dig that film. But um, I think a lot of his later films in the 70s, like The Professional and The Night Caller and um, That Man from Rio and... Uh, the burglars would be more kind of the uh, skeet catnip that I think <laughs> <laughs> the burglars reading that does, does sound like one I need to find because I just having a quick look at the councillors yeah. and uh, I mean Diane Cannon no much Sharif in there so um, yeah I, and reading that synopsis I'm, I think I'm up for that okay well maybe, maybe we can arrange that Raquel Welch Le Animal Ooh, okay <laughs> 1977 um, I'm going to close this out, though, with one other film that was the one I had meant to talk about, because you all do this, so I can do this yeah. too. Um, of course you can. I uh, blind bought <laughs> a film bus. from Australia from 2008 called uh, Lake Mungo uh, that the uh, UK label Second Sight released. Uh, and Second Sight specializes in these collector's editions, and they had an amazing collector edition of um, the amazing Nicholas Rogue film Walkabout. And because their shipping was expensive, I'm like, oh, I should buy something else. And I'd heard good things about this film. Um, have you guys seen Lake Mungo? No, I, I haven't. I've been aware oh. of it. Excuse yeah, title title made me sort of kind of thinking, have I seen it? But I don't think so. Looking at it, there's it's. I know it's in that kind of that creepy Australian psychological, you know, mm. hellscape that it, uh, a lot of ones are. But I think I'm confusing it with one we saw recently. Yeah, so it's. Yeah, um, no, I definitely haven't seen it. It's a faux documentary, but it shouldn't be called a mockumentary because there's nothing uh, humorous about it whatsoever. And um, technically, it's a horror film. It's a ghost story. But where most ghost stories are 90% scares, 10% sadness, this is like 90% sadness, 10% scares. And it does, it plays into this whole like, this person died at this lake and then there's sights of them and, and presents it as if it were a documentary on it and uses, it's not technically a found footage film, but it uses found footage within it. So it's like the documentarians who are making this film have shot the film, but have included, this was V, you know, high eight footage shot the last day that Alice Palmer was alive. This is footage that we found on her cell phone, blah, blah, blah. Um, but then it combines those found footage aesthetics with the aesthetics of true crime documentaries. And um, yeah, it really knocked me for a loop and it really um, surprised me. The director is completely um, disappeared off the map. This was his only film and they've put out this beautiful special edition. And I think literally everybody involved except the director has participated in it. And um, there's just a reference in the booklet of like, he has no social media presence. I don't know what the film's dedicated to his dad who died in 2006. And I think there was a lot of, um, I think there were some issues when it was released 
based about like kind of it was done before paranormal activity, but nobody knew how to market it. And then I think they pushed it in the States a bit after paranormal activity came out. And that's like, Oh, it's a paranormal activity ripoff. So. (laughs) Right. (laughs) uh, Yeah. I really, um, it's not one I'd show in a group because it's, it's just one of those, like if you're sitting down late at night and up for something a little spooky and, you know, kind of willing to get lost in the atmosphere of it. Uh, it's a pretty, it's a pretty special film, and it um, really keeps you on your toes as to what's real, what's not, where it might be going. And I don't want to spoil any of the places it does go, but I don't think it disappoints at all. And I think um, it's a really undersung movie that deserves a lot more attention. Right. Mm. Nice. Well, before we move on to our movies, there's two little things I want to do. One. Uh, my new Raging Bull, uh, because I looked up to see what is the highest rated movie on the IMDb that I haven't seen, and it's 12 Angry Men. So oh. I'll be um, watching that sometime in the next two to three years and talking okay. about it. <laughs> and just one of my one-line questions. In one line, without mentioning New York Ninja, what's your m- upcoming movie that you're most looking forward to? Oh. Ooh. Probably French Dispatch. Oh, Sorry? Probably French Dispatch, the new Wes Anderson. I actually ah. just watched Grand Budapest Hotel the other night as well. I rewatched it, and it reminded me of like, you know, lots of people complain about Wes Anderson films that they're kind of all traverse a similar stylistic wheelhouse, and it's like, yeah, but nobody else is making these films, you know? <laughs> it's like oh. at some point Wes Anderson will die, and we'll have no more Wes Anderson films, and there will occasionally be the film that sort of strives to be a little. Wes Anderson e, but like nobody really. It's not like MCU films where dozens of people can make those films. You know, it's not like um, it's not even like a James Wan horror where it's like, yeah, he's good at making horror, but other people can make those. It's like nobody else can get like thirty name actors to go like pack up their lives, move to Poland and like spend a month (laughs) in a hotel dicking about and then like be like, oh, and now we're going to like shoot you with special process footage and you're going to sit in a little sled and like move around. And it just (laughs) they're, they're absolutely nuts films and it's easy to take for granted, you know, in the same way that I think like for a long time before he took his major hiatus, David Lynch started getting taken for granted. And it's like, you know, when, when somebody who's an auteur keeps doing the same thing, it can be like, Oh, it's that again. It's like, so yeah. So I've seen a few reviews of French dispatch. Um, there's probably other films. I mean, Titan is a big one. The, uh, Palm door winner from the director of raw, uh, that sounds certifiably nuts, but yeah. That's the one. My one is Last Night in Soho. Mm. Uh, oh, that was the, my one. Uh, I, I thought, thought you, you might be. That's why I jumped in there. I thought I'm going to be. I'm going to be left by the guy. Me too, because it's Edgar Wright, and we both love Edgar Wright movies. Of course. Due for release early and November. Yeah, Giallo as Giallo with time hopping Giallo. It's. I watched the trailer yesterday, and I was like, I would love to live in Edgar Wright's head for 15, 20 minutes or so, because the imagination that man has is just ridiculous. And basically, from now I've seen that trailer, I'm going to look up nothing else about that movie. If another trailer comes out, I'm going to ignore it. Absolutely. It's supposed to come out the 4th of November here. That'll depend on where we are lockdown-wise in November. I'm sure we should be up by then, he says. Knock wood. 
And if so, <laughs> I will be uh, trying to get there to the movies as quick as possible to see that because it looks like it's going to be fantastic. Well, seeing as you've said that, then I'm just uh, and that was mine, but I'm going to move to the new the new Bond film because I just want to fucking see the film so it's <laughs> so it's seen. So and, it's seen. Uh, <laughs> No time it's to die. No time. No, no, next time to die. Later, we'll, we'll die later. We'll <laughs> die after. <laughs> no, no time to show this movie. Uh, eventually, Which, the past couple of years has been no time to show it at all. No. It's, uh, well, so yeah. Do we um, think it's going to come out? Well, the tickets no. went on sale in the UK yesterday, apparently, according to the um, the Guardian. Oh wow! So they and, are going to release it. And it's it's uh, running time one hundred and sixty three minutes. That's plenty of time to die. <laughs> <laughs> no time to go to the bathroom. I think it's going to be cool. Bathroom, so. <laughs> I um I was really uh, surprised. Or the thing that takes me um, by shock is like if you gave me a time machine and put me at March one twenty twenty, and said which will come out first? No time to die. The new mutants or chaos walking. Um, I would have thought we still wouldn't have seen new mutants or chaos walking, which had been both famously in post for many, many years and new time, no time to die. was just on the verge of having press screening releases when March, 2020 rolled around. And now here we are and they've had to reshoot no time to die because the, um, sponsors had outdated technology. So they had to reshoot all the (laughs) scenes with sponsored technology. So that it was up to date. Amazing. Have you seen Chaos Walking? I haven't seen either of those, to be fair. Is there any reason to? No, probably not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, I have seen um, a um, what you mentioned. Um, I think it was the last episode or the last episode before the last episode there, Doug. White Lotus. Oh, yes. Which, wow. Yeah. Wow to White Lotus. It's it's quite it's one of those. Again, I'd I'd put it in the category of uh, Mad Men and the fact that it's hard to explain why it's as good as it is. I, I mean, it's definitely the writing, but there's not a great deal actually happens. But it's it's just yeah, um, it's brilliant. My wife wrote it's, a really I'd, good blog about it, actually. Yes, um, and I I read that blog. Yeah, yeah it was very very good. But yeah, it's it's, um, but it's really compelling. It's not action packed, but it's the characters are such, and the uh, the satire is just so so well done. Yeah, Fair, no, yeah, I love that. Yeah, nice. Right. Well, I think I've extended this to uh, Bond length, so we so we let's probably, move on uh, to nineteen eighty seven. Head to nineteen eighty seven. Before we kick into the the movie specifically from nineteen eighty seven. Shall, uh, shall I tell you why 1987 is the best year for movies of my life? Of course I will. I'm going to do that. I think you should. <laughs> uh, seeing as this is your idea, I, I, think, I think you should. Uh, you got to do it later on when you pick out your own year. But uh, for me, 87, because I'm was i going to give away my age. I was 14 at 87. <gasps> so, we did yes. an episode with our birthdays, birth years on it. So we I did. Think. <laughs> so we've given that one quite away a long time. It's been a few episodes. I forgot about that one. But, well, I'm shocked for the person who didn't listen to it. <laughs> no. <gasps> so, I mean, I could have picked 86, because 86 I got to see Aliens, which is my first R13 movie that I got to see in the cinema. But for me, 87 is just the the hits are so strong, and even the, the not-so-good movies 
make for such entertaining viewing. So I've got the list in front of me of, of the, the top grossing movies from 1987, all 200 of them. So we're not going to go through all of those. Otherwise, we'll be here for a year and a half. But is this top grossing in the U.S. or worldwide? Top grossing in the U.S. And I'm just going on the calendar gross is what they picked up on the year for a start. Oh, then if Crocodile Dundee sits there about number 13, but it became the biggest grossing movie in the next year. It's, it's quite remarkable when you look at it. Crocodile Dundee. Uh, came out in September 26, 1986. You know how long it was in the theaters for? 66 weeks. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Which is, that used to happen. It did, and it would never it happen did. now. never will happen again. So for, uh, a year and, and nearly four more months after that, grossed something going over the of $175 million, which is about $400 million these days. So in these days, you, last, you pick up your... The last film I remember that happening to would have been Waking Ned Divine. Right. I think that that was in the uh, played at the academy for um, must have been six months or longer. Well, to be yeah. fair, they had Gloomy Sunday for four years. <laughs> wow. Well, there you go. That's that's quite remarkable. But I mean, for big grossing releases these days, I, I look back. Even Avengers Endgame was in cinemas, I think, for twenty weeks. So mm. most of the the ones in here, even in the top twenty, beat that out by around twenty five, twenty six weeks. But, that was the most loaded mmm I've ever heard. <laughs> mm, mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing we don't have a big fan of it here. <laughs> oh, you know, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Moving I, on. To, to be honest, I've forgotten which one's Endgame and which one's Infinity War, which should tell um, you something. Yeah, I can't remember which way they go around either. But, <laughs> but if, we look at, if we look at the releases here, Number one, Beverly Hills Cop 2, which is a solid, solid sequel. Very solid sequel. Number two, Platoon, and enough said about mm. Platoon. Number three, Fatal Attraction, which is about the only one of the top ten I haven't gone back and seen, barring one, which I haven't seen at all. But Fatal, Fatal Attraction, Attraction I just saw recently. It's great. You saw it? Holds up real well? Uh, well, it was my first time seeing it. So, uh, yeah, it's – I mean, I we've been um, – I think I mentioned – Oh, maybe I didn't mention this, but we watched Basic Instinct the other week and we watched The Hand That Rocks the Cradle and a few other things over the past couple of years that I all skipped at the time. Now, Platoon is also a 1986 release. I think this is a bit of a concern here because it sounds like you've based your theory on 1987 on films that came out in 1986, <laughs> according oh, okay. to Letterboxd, that, the Letterboxd you know, because they come out at Christmas. I'm going to go into box office mojo where it came out, uh, say, it's December 19th, so maybe it crossed over from 86 to 87, but it would yeah. have done all its business I, I think, in 87. I, yeah. Yep. But number four, which came out in June, is where it really starts kicking off for me. The Untouchables, which for me is a movie that has not only aged well, it's aged perfectly. It Happy is, birthday, Brian De Palma, last oh, week. Oh, yeah. Such a timeless movie. And it's, it is my favorite De Palma movie by a, a long stretch because I find a lot of his Hitchcock ones, you know, I'd rather be watching Hitchcock. But The Untouchables I rewatched last oh, year. We and, have to not agree to disagree on that or something because <laughs> – that's a whole podcast into itself. Yeah, it is. It's an absolute stunning movie. Number five, Three Men and a Baby, which came out the year before and ran for most of 2000, uh, 1987. Probably the only one I think is probably the most disposable on this list for me. But number six, I haven't seen number six, The Secret of My Success. Has oh, yeah. Really, I saw that when it came out. Michael J. Fox and yeah, I disposable comedy. I have seen that one. You get into the, the meat of it, as we say, getting the bottom of the top ten because you go stakeout. Lethal Weapon and the Witches of Eastwick. And Lethal Weapon, of course, basically defines the 80s, you know, mm-hmm. shoot 'em up explodey genre. And really, really, I mean, I can watch that on a on a yearly basis and never get tired of it. 
Number 10, my well, second... Where was Harry and the Hendersons on that list? A little further down. I'm getting to him. Getting to Harry. <laughs> <laughs> number 10, my Predator. So once you get Predator at number oh, 10 wow. and Robocop at number 14, that's basically 1987 has become the best year for me of all time. The 11th movie is the surprise to me. Would you believe uh, a comedy starring Tom Hanks and Dan Aykroyd is in there? Is that... Oh, what Drag is that? Dragnet. Is yeah, wow. Made $57 million, which is a lot more, because I remember it just being over here, just being more of a, a VHS hit. Yeah. But I don't remember it staying that long in the cinemas. No, I don't either. I remember it just came out at the start of summer, and I think, you know, you point to a lot of those hits. One thing they have in common is R-rated, and Dragnet wasn't. No. So there are a lot of kids who maybe didn't have a whole lot to see. Yeah, and it, it's it's a it's a it's a fun little likable comedy. Last time I saw it, I've, I've enjoyed watching it. It's, it's one that I, if I ran across it, I'd definitely watch it again. Not one I'd go and hunt down, but I definitely did, did enjoy that. Then you get into my sister's favorite movie of the eighties. Dirty Dancing comes in at sixteen. So that had her coverage. She watched that until the VHS tape, I think, basically committed suicide in the machine because she played it so often. It's quite good, actually. I I was really surprised. I only saw it for the first time about two years ago. It was playing in the cinema, and Sarah dragged me, and I was like, "Wow, this is a really solid movie." And also, I really <laughs> loved that there is a character called Baby who is, in fact, put in a literal <laughs> corner. <laughs> but nobody's allowed to do that. You can't do that to Baby. That's... Yeah. <laughs> Number 17, we get the first the Dalton Bonds, and they both, for me, hold up a lot better than the preceding ones that, uh, or the, sorry, the subsequent ones that came out with um, with Brosnan. Because Have we not got to Good Morning Vietnam, by the way, yet? Because it that was is, huge. It is huge. Apparently, it is in uh, here, did a huge amount of business. But maybe uh, mostly I, I in 88. It might have been a I Christmas release. Yeah, it was a Christmas release, so it's further down the list because I got a yeah, probably like that. And then ran that and Wall Street and stuff. Yeah, yeah. You get into the thirties, and the thirties is the twenties to thirties is where you suddenly start seeing things like the start of Star Trek for the Voyage Home, which ran throughout the whole next year, pretty much. Spaceballs was in there. Actually, did more money in nineteen eighty seven than oh, yeah. Star Trek, but didn't run as long. And I quite like Spaceballs. Me and my kids like Spaceballs. Summer yeah, School. Summer School was up there 35 oh, I thought that was just a kind of a VHS cult hit. And it's one I watched every couple of years on VHS. But mm -hmm. it's it apparently did quite a bit of business for Paramount. You get to the 30s, The Running Man. Adventures in Babysitting, The Lost Boys, The Princess Bride, which only made 30 mil in the States. Wow. Oh, was it wasn't a huge film in its release. Yeah, I, a lot of people discovered that on video. I discovered that on video. I remember. Yeah, I, I uh, mine was a, a first watch was on video. Definitely, I'm pretty sure I saw it in the cinemas myself. So maybe I was just one of the few. So, and Harry and the Hendersons, as you mentioned, is there number thirty-eight. Just after Revenge of the Nerds Two, Nerds in Paradise. You start getting into the 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 didn't quite make so much money ones, but um, you can't argue with number forty-six. Little Shop of Horrors is in there, and Little Shop of Horrors is. The, the most rewatchable comedy musical of all time. Mm -hmm. uh, Raising Arizona is creeps into the top 50. Jaws the Revenge, which is hilariously watchable for the role of the wrong reasons. And uh, as you get down a little bit lower, you suddenly start seeing the ones that didn't make the money at all and yet really, really became big hits. We had as a second life. Hellraiser only made $14 million in the States. Uh, the Gate only made $14 million. 
And of all things, Evil Dead 2 only made $6 million in its box office release. That's not really a surprise, actually. It was a pretty low-profile release when it came out. I suppose it's just where you put your own... I mean, how much you think of the movie it's uh i find it a surprise but yeah you're right it's with horror fans it's it's one of the seminal horror films of all time that's just changed the direction of that uh you know from the the very very grungy serious first one and to basically the three stooges with decapitations and demons where did um, Extreme Prejudice come in that uh, list? The uh, That's where I got my um, Twitter profile pic from the uh, stocking face of Michael Ironside. I haven't run across that one yet, although um, you, here's one you're really going to be quite surprised with that it made very, very little money. Uh, the Monster Squad made a tiny amount of money. And, yeah, I'm not uh, surprised. That was a huge flop. Yeah, absolutely flopped. Uh, fortunately, some of the ones that also flopped down there were things like uh, King Kong Lives, which is worth watching if you're slightly drunk, and the Garbage Power movies, which we will not talk about. Uh, and <laughs> from seen as you've introduced it, um, Your Honor, I, I feel one and a half have... million dollars. One and a half you, million dollars. The thing that really stuns me is either I've just um, zoned out for a moment, or there's some key 1987 movies that are listed on Letterboxd that haven't come up at all. Um, Empire of the Sun. Mojo. They may be, they may be, I think a lot of these ones here, if they came out near the end, they probably crept over, they may even be in the 87 or in right. the 88 uh, one. You haven't okay. even mentioned Leonard Part 6 yet. I, I, I'm oh. going to try and avoid mentioning Leonard Part 6 because <laughs> I'm one of the fucking idiots that saw that in the cinema. Oh my what? I'm oh really? Kidding. You know, I, I had to force my family to get that out on video. I'm so proud. <laughs> that is one that that is that is maybe the the sore spot of 1987 for me that I did actually pay money, uh, and because I used to go to the movies at least three or four times every school holidays, no matter what was on, and it was Bill Cosby, and he Bill Cosby was fun. He's a funny guy, and uh, I went to see it, and I have never ever seen it again, and you can't make me. <laughs> <laughs> challenge <laughs> accepted and there you go good morning vietnam actually appears on this list right at the bottom because it came out so late it only made right. four hundred thousand dollars in the first in the last week and they made 123 million dollars throughout 1988 so yeah maybe there's a few of those like angel heart and near dark and prince near of darkness dark. and near Lost Boys. At the bottom as well which but that is if, if we were looking at movies underrated movies that you would persuade people that hadn't seen a movie from 1987 ever to see Near Dark for me would be the one. I think Near Dark is just such a unique take on the vampire mythos that, yeah, yeah it fits for me. It's, it's super watchable. Bear in mind here, Skeets, that in New Zealand, it usually took about six months to a year for <laughs> so, yeah, a film we, to we actually arrive it. here. Yeah, probably saw So these are all 1988 movies. <laughs> and the thing, is, the thing is, for me, these 87 movies, a lot of them, the R16s especially, the R8 ones, I wouldn't have seen until VHS. So mm. the ones I did see in 87, 88, I would have seen Three Amigos, for instance. They would have come out probably six months into 1988. But as I say, Little Shop of Horrors I remember seeing in the cinemas. I definitely remember seeing Princess Bride in the cinemas. I spent a lot of time in cinemas on my own. Did you see Prince of Darkness in the cinemas? I did not see Prince of <laughs> I did not actually see Prince of Darkness until one of the our three here actually showed it at our place. So, ah, um, right. And that is, uh-huh. once again, a fantastic film. Yeah, I'm just I mean, I'm looking at what I've watched from 87 and there's so many um, 
uh, there's a few artsy films, which I'll get into, but also um, just in terms of genre or trash stuff. I mean, you're looking at anguish. You're looking at blood rage, killing spree, rock and roll nightmare. Um, I haven't seen that. that. I have seen the video dead. Um, I have seen, as I know you guys have, Cry Wilderness. Uh, (laughs) Miami um, Connection. Skeet, I've introduced. I don't know if you've seen it, Darren. uh, Virgins in Hell. Um, Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Uh, I haven't seen that. The hits are big and the trash is amazing. Death Before Dishonor. um, R-O-T-O-R. <laughs> Rotor. Yes. Oh, I do love Rotor. Oh, yes, yeah. Rotor. Oh, well, bad taste. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. And the Stepfather. Part two as well. Jackie Chan's. Yeah. And Stage Red Aquarius, which is a great Italian giallo that uh, is set at a um, theater that everybody gets locked into that's super fun. Uh, Deadly Prey. I mean, the Hollywood Cop. It's there. There's a. Uh, it runs deep on that level. Oh yeah, Death Wish oh, Four. Stage fright. That's the um, <laughs> that's the owl-faced killer, isn't it? That's, that's the one. Yes. Yeah, we've seen that one fairly recently at my place. I think you weren't there, Skeets. Right. I don't know. Uh, uh, seen that one. Oh, and uh, I mean, we haven't even mentioned Police Academy Four: Citizens on Patrol. Or oh, Ninja Silent yeah. Assassin, aka Black Ninja, directed by one and only Godfrey Ho, who was still making movies in 1987. Um, I just have to update my letterbox because I'm not seeing Citizens on Patrol. And given that I can still sing the theme song, <laughs> I know that I've watched it. Um, but uh, Citizens on Patrol. Um, and as I am want to do, I will segue from that to the other essential movie of 1987. Uh, the Emperor's Naked Army Marches On, uh, which would be of course. my pick <laughs> for maybe the most. If I had to pick my favorite movie from 1987, it might be that, actually. Um, okay. Or possibly Born of Fire. So, so you guys have seen Born of Fire, though, which is on Indicator and is an incredible Oh, definitely. Movie. Oh, yeah. Um, so we won't belabor that point. Um, Emperor's Naked Mar- Army Marches On. Um, I've got my Blu-ray in front of me here. And usually you get review quotes. This has re- review. This has pull quotes from two of the most famous documentary makers ever. Here was one of the weirdest, most dramatic stories ever. And the movie itself, what can I say? It's on my list of the 10 best movies ever. Errol Morris. Meanwhile, Michael Moore says, it was like I had this soul brother in Japan. I was inspired. I was exhilarated. I had never seen anything like this. So the story about it is it's released in 1987 and was filmed leading up to it. And it was about, um, as by a, a... documentarian named Kazuo Hara, who's long been a fringe figure in Japanese filmmaking. And he's following an aging uh, Japanese World War II vet named Kenzo Okuzaki, who um, is trying to uncover the truth about atrocities committed in the Pacific. Uh, And he's going and searching down all these old um, military uh, officers that he thinks are responsible for uh, basically cannibalism. Uh, and, uh, if it were just him accusing them on camera at a a loud voice with a camera crew present, it would be a pretty tense, interesting documentary. Um, eventually Kenzo Okuzaki just 
decides to descend into physical violence against the people that he meets. And so it becomes this really fascinating, um, you know, text about complicity with the filmmaker. You know, there's times where it's like, is the guy going to put the camera down? Is he letting this happen? What's going on? And also it's like, it's such a quixotic quest. He's like this guy that's driving around this customized car with loudspeakers and all this stuff and trying to uncover this thing that nobody really hears about, but it's just, it's just relentlessly compelling, you know, back before everybody had cameras to have somebody who committed for a long time to a person who was that, whose story was that unique and to get so much confrontational, powerful footage on screen. It's um, yeah. The, uh, impeccable uh, Blu-ray company Second Run has released it, and you can import it from Zavi. It's an all-region release. I know it's also out there on YouTube, I think, but The Emperor's Naked Army marches on. Wow. That sounds like a very Doug film, I have to say. So, <laughs> I was saying, really it really does. When we were originally going to do our favorite picks for 1987 instead of our which would have only been a sort of mildly specific one, I was going to uh, make you guys watch that one, but um, Instead, we watch some real classy shit instead. Oh, yeah. Woo! Yeah, I've got to say, the movies we did pick, we each picked one based on our premise of, which I remind you, R-rated movies, starting with R, that were released in 1987. Only to find out uh, pretty much this morning that one of those films didn't actually come out in 1987. Um, I don't know if you just that. 1991, we, uh, had yeah. a, it was held back for quite some time because of unspecified legal reasons. Uh, and our films probably aren't exactly the ones that are going to convince anyone that 1997 was the greatest movie year of all time. But shall we get into them? Because Did anyone really expect that to happen? <laughs> well, I kind of hoped we would because my pick was 1987's Rage of Honor, starring Shokasugi, who, to my mind, was in dozens of movies in the 80s as a ninja. And then when I look it up, he was actually in 19 movies and TV shows in his entire career which was quite bizarre because I used to see his name on video boxes all the time, but they presumably just retitled movies with, you know, his, his uh, title slapped on there. Well, to be fair, you've seen lots of films that probably have planks of wood in them, so you might have got confused. <laughs> <laughs> they're similarly ex Ooh. expressive. Everyone's Wasn't he a critic, the bad especially guy a critic. In, um, in that Lee Marvin, uh, not Lee Marvin, um, he, The he Master the master. Leave I'll, I'll give you give you a bit of background, and this is as much background as I found on on show. Mm -hmm. Shoichi Shokasugi, born Tokyo, 1948, former All Japan Karate Champion. At the age of 19, he left Japan to study and reside in Los Angeles, where he got a bachelor's degree in, of all things, economics. Uh, he then got himself a uh, a small role in a, a little movie called uh, The Godfather, I believe, or what? Godfather. He's he's an extra in one of the Godfather movies, Godfather Part Two, in fact, as uh, <clears throat> passerby in coat with cat pulled down, uncredited. <laughs> oh, a very memorable role. Um, very sorry, memorable Skeets, role. Don't, don't let me interrupt you. The, the show must go on. So. <laughs> hey, I knew someone's going to make that at some stage. Guess out. <laughs> <laughs> Look, show uh, don't tell, Darren. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Uh, show enough. I'm going to move on and ignore all this, <laughs> all this unprofessionalism and silliness, and talk about his Did next movie. Did he do anything with um, Tom Cruise? Or uh, no, uh, no, I won't do the show me the money joke. Let's, no, no. I'll move on to his much more serious next role, where he was uncredited again, and Bruce Lee fights back from the grave. 
two movies later, after the Bad News Bears goes to Japan, he actually finally got credited as Shokasugi in Enter the Ninja. And that was pretty much his career path was underway because he was in Enter the Ninja, Revenge of the Ninja, and, of course, Ninja 3, The Domination, which uh, we God all know about. Yes. Uh, and this is where show ended up in video boxes all over the world. Uh, also, in between that, he did appear in The Master, which is a TV series with uh, Lee Van Cleef, of all people. I keep thinking of the Paul Thomas Anderson movie, and that's... It's not that. <laughs> it's not that. It's definitely not it that. Is, it's not that. <laughs> <laughs> I have recently bought the Blu-ray of um, of the Master Show. I, I used to watch it with um, my aunties. They'd get the DVDs out from Videon, and um, which would have two episodes per. Sorry, video out from Videon. They'd have two episodes per video. Right. They were, yeah, it's a, a stroll down memory lane for me. But there we go. Back to you. No, as well. Oddly enough, the, the Master is where I was going next because three episodes in 1984 directed by Gordon Hessler, uh, uh, a, originally born in Germany, son of a Danish mother, and when he went to uh, the US became under contract as a, an assistant to Alfred Hitchcock because, quote, I think it was because I had, an, Ameri- had a, an English accent. And he directed quite a lot of films in his career, including the one we're talking about now. Uh, started doing a lot of... Um, uh, horror movies, The Oblong Box, uh, Cry the Banshee, Scream and Scream Again, and then The Golden Voyage of Sinbad uh, with Ray Harryhausen doing the special effects back in our the wonderful year of 1973, yeah, that we've mentioned a few mm. times before. Did a lot of TV movies after that, including, I love this, Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park in 1978. A lot of TV shows, and then at around the age of 60-ish, started doing ninja movies after doing three episodes of The Master, where he met Shokasugi. Well, we and still he, have time then. We, yeah, we still do. Yeah, we've still got 20 ideas that <laughs> we want to start directing ninja movies with someone <laughs> that can act as, as well as a plank of wood. And so he did, well uh, he did probably his most well-known movie, Pray for Death, and then Rage of Honor as well. Rage of Honor... I have seen Pray for Death. Rage of Honor, everyone says, is is not as good, or sometimes some some people say it's not as good as Rage of uh, as Pray for Death. Some people say it's better. For me, I had actually liked this one better because I found after years of finally hunting it down and looking for it, Pray for Death was actually very very dull. I built it up very very high in my my kind of mm. imagination of what it was going to be based on on trailers and based on the the video box. But um, this one. I think Doug summed it up best when he said it's very, very dumb. Uh, <laughs> I've got to say, it's entertainingly a, dumb, Rage of Honor. It's a thigh-slapping dumb-a-rama of it a movie. Is. It's, a, a, it's such a fun time. <laughs> I, I, you asked the other day about movies to watch drunk, and I deeply regret <laughs> that I was sober when I watched Rage of Honor. <laughs> Did not improve the experience, and I suspect it highly lessened it. I, I watched it early in the morning, and I probably it would have been much better late at night after a couple of beers. Because I'll give you the the the, the, the IMDb rundown. Tanaka, a DEA agent, and he's not from the Drug Enforcement Authority. He's from the drug. Uh, I think he's from the the Drug Enforcement. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, they they force you to take drugs. It was. It was. I forget what it was. It was a completely made-up agency. It, it was. was uh, I believe. I believe its acronym was oh, DIB. Drug Bureau. Investigation Bureau. That was one. Yeah, DIB. So yeah. he he works for DIB apparently. <laughs> T- 
Tanaka and his partner Ray are after a bunch of drug dealers, but they're betrayed by an insider and Ray is killed. Tanaka follows the culprit, a sadistic drug lord, down to Argentina. The weirdest thing for me is right off the bat, this movie just throws everything out the window by going, okay, we've got some American drug agents. Where should we start the first thing in the movie? In Argentina. That's part of their jurisdiction, isn't it? And <laughs> then they give the old drug enforcement agents, Tanaka, ninja skills. And they never explain why he's got ninja skills, why he's carrying shuriken and his boots, which for me is possibly one of the stupidest places you could put a sharp pointy object, why he can do martial arts. They basically explain it and hand waving it by saying, don't forget, he's Japanese. Yes. <laughs> Shokasugi is so he's complicated. Kind of like, he's, he's like Oprah Winfrey. Everyone gets a shuriken. It's... Oh. Uh, <laughs> He's, I, I did like his shuriken, which had a little uh, display Aww. on the side of an LED display, which was apparently an explosive shuriken, which seems somewhat pointless, because if you've thrown a shuriken to someone's forehead, you don't need to blow him up at the same time. But though, of course guess, you do. Have you seen this movie? <laughs> I did see this movie. This movie started off very dumb, got a little dull, <laughs> and then went to incredibly dumb. Until with the point where I just had to rewind to show the one certain scenes that she'd missed of, for instance, a man at the top of a very tall part of a warehouse falling off and instantly turning into a very, very obvious dummy before he plummets off to the ground, which I, I laughed myself silly. Oh, I love the introduction of the bad guy who's just this guy who... Uh, who gets out of the airport and suddenly there is evil music as he gets to a taxi. <laughs> It's well, sort of, okay, he might be the bad guy. He but might it was... be. I'm, I'm not sure he was, though. He, um, I'm not sure he was, because he was described as a man in his 20s, and the actor playing him was 49 fucking years old. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I love the bit where um, Shokasugi gets um, blown um it's uh, blown up. Um, it's later on in the movie. He, there's an explosion, and he uh, that he right uh, does now. that <laughs> usual jump thing. And then, and then is the next scene is uh, the next cut is him running away. Like it took no time for him to uh, get blown up and then run for it. I mean, there's there's no continuity. In serious ninja skills. Where physics is just it does not affect him in the slightest. If the Editing in this film just makes him into this bizarre, you know, Superman because he can do anything so long as you edit out the bits which would actually be a stunt. So any stunt there normally gets edited so that you're getting a very, very close up of the person involved in it and then cutting to the end of the stunt. I did like the, 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 the special mention to the stunt where he was supposedly hanging off the side of a cliff next to a waterfall in Argentina and they simply filmed him lying on a bank with the waterfall quite a long way behind him and it's it's what's what i'm looking for unconvincing i think is the word i think i think, I think you so found in this film that just like they don't even know where they put the camera to sell the stuff on so many levels <laughs> i mean there's a whole scene where they're at some rich person's party and there's this guy doing this dance with ropes <laughs> in his mouth yep. um and that seems like it should be cool and he's doing something where he's dancing over them with his feet we think because his feet are out of frame. Yeah. And everybody is looking around like it's impressed. And his head is at like a third up the frame. And there's <laughs> like all this roof above him. And yet the impressive thing that this guy is doing in one consecutive shot that looks to be real 
we don't actually get to see. And no. it was I, I watched Cape the other night, the Netflix film, which isn't very good. And um, one of the things that is uh, very obvious in it is when they cut from um, Mary Elizabeth Winstead doing a stunt to edit very quickly to her stunt double flying back. And there's so many scenes in this film that you can tell show is doing the stunt. He's doing the work. He's, you know, he's doing it, but it's just like, it shot so unimpactfully. It's not well filmed at all. I mean, they, they shoot most of the martial arts scenes in, in, in close-ups, which you don't shoot a martial arts scene in close-up because you want to show off the martial arts. Yeah. The guy dancing... I don't know that he's selling it all that well either, though, is he, really? I mean, it's... He's energetic. No matter how you we'll shoot it, I don't, we'll... he's energetic, but I don't think he... <laughs> I don't think he's selling a stunt like Jackie Chan can sell a stunt or, no. or Bruce Lee. He's not or YK selling him for that. He's, he's not acting. <laughs> okay. Uh, going back to that, 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 the man dancing, not only did we not see his feet, I don't think anyone did because did you notice the way they blocked that scene? They basically had him in front of a large staircase. He's dancing towards us in the camera and everyone at the party is up on the stairs looking at his back, which seems... <laughs> <laughs> illogical to uh, the way to watch something he's he's just he's yeah. he's directing his his dance out into the middle of nowhere so um good for us i guess if we could have seen his feet it would have been better yeah but the would it, um, would it it's, though? i don't know i mean it's 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 at least it would have been entertaining and, and not slightly cringeworthy like when he goes to argentina and discovers a tribe of face-painted natives that attempt which to he wipes the fuck out he just murders people left right and center yes yeah, show is, He's is the good guy. Possibly. Trigger <laughs> warning for all indigenous people: do not watch this film. Oh well. Also, don't watch it if you're looking for a romantic comedy because his uh, his 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 charisma is um, it's not great. And him and and Robin Evans playing as his his love interest have the chemistry of two inert carbon rods. Uh, oh, did you say, oh, Robin? Oh, God, I thought for a second Robert Evans. Robert that would be... Let me know. Bold casting choice, perhaps. So. <laughs> we might have had somebody say something interesting if he was in the film, to be fair. <laughs> I don't think scripting was really that big a thing. It was kind of... It was very much a lot of set pieces tied together with very small bits of plot. And... I, I, well, about halfway through the movie, someone was getting beaten, and I could not remember if it was his partner, whether he was dead or not, or whether it was somebody else in the film now getting beaten and brutalized to advance the plot. Because it was everyone apart from Sho was pretty much disposable. You could see Sho Kasugi, and you know him, and everyone else is just kind of a face. Also, how the fuck many henchmen did Havelock have? Havelock's our bad guy. It was like an oh, infinite amount of people coming to be blown up. Yeah, well, I, I think you just got to have as many people as you can, don't you? So, <laughs> just to throw them at the good guy. One thing about it, uh, did you notice that um, Shokasugi had a credit for um, designing his gadgets? His, um, his weapon. You had the patience to watch the credits. I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not, not all of them. Okay. But, um, but the what kind of good guy has a pair of gloves which have a big fuck-off um, jagged yes. dagger. Oh, and let's talk about that scene, right? Because Where did he get like, from? He uses them. <laughs> he pulls them out of his pockets or something, and he fights with them, and then he's got the guy there, and then he takes them off again. Yeah. Yes. And I, I feel like that's... I feel like this movie doesn't understand 
where it fits on a spectrum of violence and what it wants to like how bloody it wants to be or how impactful it wants to be you know and um it's and then he wipes yeah, out an strange. entire tribe of indigenous um, Amazonians. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, if, if, if you're saying if it, if it was the Sunny Chiba movie, he would have there would have been blood on the walls with those those claws. I, I don't think he took them out of his pocket actually, because he definitely reached behind him. So he was carrying those in a very uncomfortable manner because those were big fucking things. They had big spikes on the top of them too. So um, yeah, he he was able to basically. He was carrying them in his man pocket. Do you think? think oh, yeah. God, he carried a lot of stuff there. He materialized weapons. Left it's like right Johnny, Johnny Depp in Before Night Falls. Only. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, ouchie, ouchie. Yeah, it's it's an interesting movie. If you if you like a really dumb action sequence, you've got a lot of really dumb action sequences. I I, I thought the the entire action sequence in the the giant warehouse where. Guys are just coming out of the woodwork like you know, like whack-a-mole and driving things that have been firing rocket launchers. It was just wonderful, and the the fact that it made sure. no sense, that it made no the physics didn't affect it in the slightest. It didn't affect the storyline at all, but it was there just to go. Let's blow some shit up for a couple of days. But the rest of it around it, the, the plot is just pretty much non-existent. Shokazugi is not a great actor, I will say, and he said English is not his first language. But the trouble is. You had about eight different accents dueling. You had different people doing South American accents. Not very well. You had Shokasugi speaking accent in English. It's not even if it well. was a good plot, I wouldn't have understood half of it because there's there's mm. there's just a lot of non-actors in this one attempting to act. Sorry, I just remembered one of the greatest moments, which is when he goes into the hotel room and his wife is um hanging off the balcony <laughs> and the guy the yeah. guy is like trying to like step on her hands or something incredibly yep. protracted and he goes and he throws the man into the room and instead of doing the remotest thing to try to save his wife <laughs> he just goes and has like a really like kind of um mid-pace kung fu fight with him you know like taking that time to get in the stance and do yeah. stuff and it's like dude your lady is <laughs> hanging from a balcony after having been beaten and unless you figured out the obvious solution, which is she could just move herself two inches forward and fall into the next balcony, which is what eventually happens. It takes like <laughs> five minutes of unnecessary panic to happen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> i got to say that the henchman didn't really seem to be doing his job much because he, he just, he wasn't really so much stepping on her hands as just gently nudging her in the general direction of the ground. Yeah. So, I'd have a lot of feedback from HR if he um, wasn't. <laughs> Dead. <laughs> <laughs> your heart's just not in this anymore. You know, maybe we can just move you into into personnel for a few. Your heart's months. not in your chest either. After you fell from the uh, <laughs> large heights into the uh, street. Yeah. So, so Shokasugi, excellent in um, in Revenge of the Ninja. He plays a great part in that one. Excellent in Ninja Three: The Domination because that whole movie is excellent. Rage of Honor. Yeah, more like sort of wave of confusion. Frankly, it's uh, the explosions and confusions. It's it's not my the my top martial arts movie I've seen this year. It's probably not my but top I, martial arts movie I've seen this month, uh, to be honest. But I I had a heck of a lot of fun just watching it on my own. I can't wait to see this in a group. I oh, think yeah. it will just be such a fun film to watch. Yeah, with that's a bunch uh, of if, if we put if we put that off for a couple of years and then bring it back again with with a, a lot of people on you know one of our birthday marathons and quite a bit of alcohol, we should have quite a good time. I think so. It's um, 
I, I, I watched it sober and I had a had a hoot and a holler of a time. <laughs> I think you've been in lockdown too long. <laughs> exactly. You've been watching too many movies with your mom. It's just like, hey, there's a shuriken, five out of five. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, is this um, well, the time we, what, to mention that I watched Rita Sue and Bob Two with my mum? That was. I was enough. actually thinking of t- warning you, but I was just like, "No, he wouldn't. He knows." It's <laughs> well, we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, th- now, d- the real question is: Did you watch Rampage with your mom? I fucking didn't. <laughs> that that's a very wise decision. Yeah. So <laughs> let's move. Let's move on to Rampage. Oh, wow. We segued the shit out of that one. Here we go. Rampage. It's It was made in 1987, don't you know? Mm, um, it was. Not, well, not seen by anyone in 1987. No, no not at all. Um, as you said, 1991. Um, now, William Friedkin, not going to go into him um, at all, really. It's... Uh, Basically, Sea Leap of Faith. The William, it's William Friedkin on The Exorcist. It's on it Shudder, I believe. Yeah, it's on Shudder, and it's it's brilliant. It was one of my favorite films of the festival last year. It gives a very nice deep dive into William Friedkin, not only about Exorcist, but about about him and his yeah. influences and and his obsession with art and. And how that turns up in his work, it's, um, yeah. One of my favorite filmmaking documentaries ever. Oh, yeah. It's just stunning. And I saw it with you, Doug, didn't I, at at your place? Oh, yeah, uh, I think so, yeah. Yeah, thank you for remembering. It was special for me, too. Thanks. (laughs) Dude, that was, like, last year, which is, like, a good... What, 500 movies ago. Movies ago. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Now, um, when it comes to Rampage, William Friedkin said, there are a lot of people who love Rampage, but I don't think I hit my own mark with that. So he, he I only wasn't agree a... with half that statement. Mm, yeah. I can't believe there's a lot of people that love this movie. <laughs> now, any any Morricone, uh, he wrote this, he did the score. And it's a, it's it's pretty good score. I, I, I it gave a uh, a feeling of atmosphere which I think it needed. It's um, now uh, William Friedkin. He uh, also said that at the time we made Rampage, producer Dino De Laurentiis was um, was running out of money. He finally went bankrupt after a long career as a producer. He was doing just scores of films and was unable to give any of them his real support and effort. And so literally, by the time it came to release Rampage, he didn't have the money to do it. And he was not only the financier, but the distributor. His company went bankrupt and the film went black for about five years. Eventually, the Weinstein's company, Miramax, took it out of bankruptcy and released it. So isn't it nice to have the Weinsteins as the heroes in this? <laughs> but, uh, Let's move on, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That can go on the tombstone. Uh, At least they saved Rampage. <laughs> <laughs> now, William Freakin, he, he later, he re-edited the film and he changed the ending as his view on the death penalty had changed. And we'll, we'll go into that one a little later. In his film review, Roger Ebert, he gave, um, gave three stars out of four, saying this is not a movie about a murder so much as a movie about insanity. As it applies to murder in the uh, in modern American criminal courts, Friedkin's message is clear: those who commit heinous crimes should pay for these 
these um, for them, sane or insane. I can't read my own writing. I apologies here. You kill somebody, you fry, unless the verdict is murky or there were extenuating circumstances. That doesn't so, seem like a clear message at all. No, well, I'm pretty sure that was his intention when he wrote that. It's, um, he had so an this intention, one, you reckon? <laughs> <laughs> what, Roger Ebert is what I'm sure, saying. Yes. Now, um, the synopsis of this film, if you, if you need one, it's uh, loosely based on the real-life story of Richard Chase, the blood-drinking necrophiliac serial killer known as the Vampire of Sacramento. So, yes, one to show, Aiden. Yes, well, uh, I was going to say that we probably, uh, if we can just agree to not talk about any details about Richard Chase, because I looked up on him, and I'd like to reserve a special, and first time ever, golden, go fuck that guy to that guy. Because (laughs) the stuff that he did was much more horrific than what we see on screen. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We will not mention his name after this. We're just talking about him as that guy. Okay, so Rampage follows the serial killer Charlie Reese through his killing spree and subsequent subsequent capture. Michael Bain's character, District Attorney Tony, Tony Fraser, is a devout Catholic, is um, so horrified by the carnage he pursues the death penalty. Unfortunately for all concerned, Reese ain't done yet. And so the story goes on. So it's half serial killer, thriller, half courtroom drama. Hey, um, um, there's a scene midway through the trial where, um, without getting too spoilery, the canvas of the story expands. Uh, Is that at all based on the true story? It's of that guy. Looking on uh, that guy, they definitely they played around a lot of it. There's uh, there's a. A scene in the, the middle, which is, that was out of whole cloth, which was the uh, the escape. Yeah, that's escape. what I'm referring that, to. That is completely out of whole Spoiler cloth, and yeah. the end of the movie as well. Which even one no, of the, the characters says, "Why would he do that?" That guy, he did, he did commit suicide in prison. Apparently, exactly. exactly. But the 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 spoiler on the, the on that guy is that he the, they even say in the movie, "Well, why would he do that?" The real thing is the prisoners in the prison was so scared of him, they basically convinced him to commit suicide. They would not get close enough to take him out in prison, as most, you know, absolute evil bastards are and normally shanked in prison by somebody. No one would get near him. They just persuaded him to do the job himself because everyone was afraid of him. So, wow. um, yeah, that's that's a, that's definitely high-level fuck you to that guy. Well, uh, here's um, a freaking nugget you might not know, uh, well, unless you do know it. Um, and then you'll hear it again. Uh, so Friedkin was actually approached by Michael Mann about playing Hannibal Lecter in Manhunter. Whoa. Could you I imagine? Succession could have been very different, Doug. <laughs> wow. Um, and also, like, there is an element of this that's sort of Manhunter-ish. Like, mm. that I was... It, I mean, it's Manhunter with a, a brain injury, but... Um, still, there's a version of it where you kind of think maybe that's what he's going for, and then it turns into a courtroom film. Um, well, Frank I was can it... say about Rampage. Sorry, I've just got a wee bit more, and no then worries. I'll shut the fuck up. Um, so, <laughs> no, I won't. Likely actually. theory. <laughs> <laughs> So Freakin said, uh, one of the questions of the film is what makes a, per- a bad person bad? Charles Reese, our film's serial killer, is medically and scientifically unsound. He has a chemical imbalance. 
w- he was liked by people in his neighborhood. That's real. We got that from that guy. He had a lot of people there who actually thought he was a decent kid. A great deal of the time, we realized that a lot of evil in the world has been done by people with chemical imbalances. You can have a chemical imbalance the same way some people have a physical disorder. So that's that was a major part of what he was thinking when he was making this film. Alex MacArthur was told, and I found this one quite interesting, that when speaking to a lot of psychiatrists, he wanted to bring some uh, some schizophrenic traits to the to the movie. Um, he was told, "Don't prank, practice the symptoms of schizophrenia because it could actually make you schizophrenic." Mm. Right, I haven't heard that one before. It does seem to make sense, though, in the way that neuroplasticity works, that if if it's something about uh, rewiring your brain for different stimuli, then that could just be an expression. I mean, obviously, all mental, quote unquote, illness is just a different expression of what the brain is capable of. And some mental illness is genetic, some is uh, develops because of society, you know, and so it totally makes sense that. I mean, you know, God, I mean, look at the times that we're living in, the amount of uh, anxiety and trauma that's in the world right now. Um, just in terms of Friedkin's collaborators, I was going to mention the DOP of this film, who is uh, Robert Yeoman, who weirdly I'd watched a film that he'd shot the previous week, which was the Grand Budapest Hotel. He's mostly famous these days as Wes Anderson's DP. Um, this comes at the entire other end of his career where um, the same year as he did this, he did Playboy's Bedtime Stories and had previously worked with um, William Friedkin on the Wang Chung video for the um, song for the title of uh, To Live and Die in L.A. and presumably got this job, which was only his second feature um, after a film in 1983 with Alexander Rockwell called Hero uh, off the back of that, which um, probably explains why this looks nothing like Grand Budapest Hotel, among <laughs> other reasons. Yeah, it's it's not a bright '80s movie. This one, I mean, we, you know, it's not a hard, not an easy well, movie to find. The stuff we have is is not not brilliant that we managed to get hold of, but um, it's a grey movie. It's 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 very much the opposite of the of the bright '80s neon that you would normally expect. Yeah, yeah, it's as but they more feel like um, daytime soaps. I mean, uh, the f- most I've laughed at any of these three films we watched is when there's a slow motion, like, I don't even think it's a Cabbage Patch Kid. I think they couldn't afford a Cabbage Patch Kid. So I think it's a ripoff of a Cabbage Patch Kid falling to the ground when they find out that Michael Bean's daughter has had a bad turn in her health or died or something. I can't remember what it is. And there's this climactic close-up of it falling. Yeah. And yeah, that's that's, that's kind of the sort of level of dramaturgy that it works on is this sort of general hospital level yeah, kind of staging, that, which that is very bizarre. Is, that storyline too felt very unnecessary. It didn't feel like we needed yeah. his backstory of his, you know, of his, of his failing marriage around that because it, it really didn't bring anything to the table. I mean, you know, me, he, you know, supposedly was there to help him connect with the uh, father who lost his, his wife and, and mm. son to a serial killer. But to me, it just felt, as you say, daytime TV. It, should, it felt like something out of a, a TV movie. I thought Michael Bain gave a very good performance, though. Oh, I thought Solid actor. 
I think within the context of the script, but you look at, um, again, you look at Manhunter, which explores kind of similar territory of the extent to which pursuing somebody who is complicit in this sort of crimes can wreck your life. And you look at the nuance and the psychological weight that is carried in that film. And then you look at this crack of shit. (laughs) (laughs) I can't work out what you're trying to say here, Doug. It's, um, (laughs) I'm saying, I'm saying that, you know, Freed can probably wrote the screenplay on Coke and the visual style looks like new Coke. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's, that should be on the video cover. Yeah. <laughs> or, or should it? There's a lot of, um, I mean, there's a lot of great freaking films I have time for. Um, but I mean, you watch this and you're like, this is the same guy who made fucking sorcerer. And you get this kind of sense, even just looking at freaking filmography around the time that he's been so kind of, chastened by his fall from grace he managed to make to live and die in la which is really good so i don't want to kind of paint it too binary but it's like then the tv show cat squad or the tv movies cat squad and the sequel oh okay because actually robert yeoman shot cat squad as well i didn't even realize that that was a uh, friedkin joint as well um yeah so it was yeah so he did a tv movie with friedkin and then did a movie that looks like a TV movie with Friedkin. Yeah. I don't think the structure of the movie did it any favors too, because I mean, no spoilers here, but they catch the serial killer about 20 minutes into a 97 minute movie. Mm. And then it pretty much, if it wasn't for the, the written out a whole cloth escape sequence in the middle of the, that it would just be a trial movie. It would just be yeah. basically mm. a courtroom drama for the next hour and a bit. And, you know, Michael Bean definitely gets to do his full on lawyering acting. And I mean, he's just this is this was his follow up movie to Aliens, which was quite a quite a change for any actor, I think. Yeah. But he definitely gets to try and do some quite dramatic acting. But there's a lot, a lot, a lot of the psychology around it. There's a lot in the courtroom. And then when it gets to the, the escape sequence, it just feels that's just there to pad the time out because pretty much the movie from the moment you catch him is over. It's just you waiting for the verdict. Yeah. Yeah. But that scene, that scene with, um, with the, um, with that guy and the, um, and the two cops is yeah. quite, it's quite a, a neat little scene before he slaughters the fuckers. Um, and, and you notice um, they never mention that they, they still only have him on trial for five murders. And those two guys are just completely ignored. And it suddenly feels they have something where they say like they can't bring it up in the in the trial because it's irrelevant or something. But it still seems like kind of relevant, extenuating information that like, you know, know, also this guy that we were saying killed people just killed two cops yesterday and then jumped through a window at a um, that bit where he jumps through the window. That's pretty damn cool, though. I I broke his ankle doing it. He did his own. Yes, yeah, he did. Broke the ankle doing it, so I'll uh, leave the breaking your ankle stunts to Jackie Chan. But uh, yeah, but I've got to say though, it, you think it would influence a trial? Because if I'm on trial for bribery and I walk over to the jury and hand them a two hundred dollar two hundred dollars each, uh, it's probably going to come up in the trial. So well, completely irrelevant. Nobody <laughs> irrelevant, Your Honor. <laughs> Objection. Um, yeah. It's, do we have anything else uh, so about you? this film? Sorry, okay, you've been up until now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll just my sum up of this film is it's it's not one that really I mean it starts off such a 
you know, such a, a, a nasty looking film. And then it, for me, it just after that, it, it just suddenly degenerates into just a talk fest. And I, I watched the whole thing, but I, I will admit, I, I checked the running time you know, remaining quite a few times. So it would, it's not one I would go back to myself. It's definitely not one of the, the films of 1987 or 1991 when it came out. So yeah. it's just a chunk of film for me. <laughs> I, I found there were some interesting moments in there. I quite liked how they um, they stuck to the um, the father and his son and that stuff and the the weird bit where they um, where we or that's went the end of the and, movie and we went in and met the jury um, out of nowhere. It's um, and had a, a scene in with the with the jury. That sort of stuff seemed a little like he was trying to do something quite different, and he was trying to, to sort of get outside of things. But it was um, well. I think the thing yeah, is not, also that the the start of the film is so pulpy. I mean, and it's just that the nature of those crimes is so heinous, and they're portrayed in this kind of. It reminded me a little bit of that film, Mikey where it's like kind of it's really um, upsetting content, but in this sort of TV movie style and feels slightly transgressive as a result. And in Mikey, it's kind of awesome because it's such a pulpy film. But here it's this setup for what's supposed to be a very serious interrogation of the meaning of the death penalty. And it's mm. just a bit like oil and water. Mm, it's it certainly isn't uh, it's not the best film of 1987 i'll, no. uh, I'll <laughs> go on record it's uh... right um so, well shall i move us on to um another uh bleak exploration of uh the the society and its morals uh from noted director alan you. clark uh, well Look, I've got a lot to talk about here because I am a really big Alan Clark buff. I don't have you guys seen much of his stuff. I know I've shown you the Hallelujah Handshake, um, which is a pretty obscure minor work from his early TV career. Um, but, you know, his famous he famously made the film Scum with Ray Winstone uh, as a Borstal uh, kid that was banned from the BBC and only released after his death. He did. I remember um, because that was an R20 film over here. I've never seen it, but I remember it being seeing it in the, the papers and seeing an R20 rating on it, which was the first and I think only time I've ever seen an R20 rating in New Zealand when we used to have R16, R18, etc. And then you could go higher if you wanted to. And that was the, after an R20, you just got banned outright. Yeah. So I should. Yeah, and it played on TV. <laughs> I remember oh. seeing the first five minutes of that. Wow. Did it? Wow. Um, now, I should just go back. Alan Clark was born in 1935, and um, in the 60s, he started working for the BBC, and uh, I managed to pick up this amazing um, bajillion disc, uh, Alan Clark's set of um, his work at the BBC from the 1969 to 1989, and he started um, uh, doing these... Um, even these half hour story episodes before that called play for today. And almost, I think pretty much all his work was other people's scripts. And so the early things are pretty much straightforward kind of dramas, uh, that he, you know, it's just executing. Um, and then they, things start getting a little weird. He gets to work with more experimental stuff. There's the film Penda's Fen, which has been recently sort of re, um, discovered as a great folk horror. There's, 
um, Scum, which I mentioned before. There's David Bowie appearing in Baal, which is a Bertolt Brecht play in 1982. And then um, and then there's um, the debut of Tim Roth made in England as a um, uh, skinhead that, um, you know, and that and he had this talent for these, you know, discovering these incredible young actors. I mean, again, Ray Winstone, you know, with Scum in there. Um, and then in the sort of last run, he's really honed into what I would call this really bleak observational style. And that's something that kind of, um, despite the premature end of his career, which we'll get to shortly, um, made a bunch of films that really left a mark. There's a film called Contact that I just recently watched from 1985. And I say film, but most of these originally appeared on the BBC. Uh, and Contact is about soldiers in Northern Ireland. It's really it, um, English soldiers in Northern Ireland. And it's very little character. His, his films increasingly backed away from traditional kind of character in place of these extended tracking shots. Um, there's Christine about a heroin addict. Um, Road, which is another film similar to the um, some of the milieu of Rita Su- and Bob, too, that's sent in a declining part of town that follows various people on the night. Um, the Firm, which is... Uh, um, I've forgotten his name, Gary Oldman, thank you, as a um, upper-class lawyer who's also a violent soccer hooligan, and um, his famous uh, swan song, Elephant, which uh, literally consists of 18 shots of people getting killed. Uh, it follows an assassin up to uh, that, and it's it's based around the IRA murders, and they're different assassins each time. Um, and it was eventually an inspiration for Gus Van Sant's own elephant. Um, and so you might think this man who took on so many hard hitting dramas would be the perfect person to make a film about a predatory man who um, sexually uh, takes advantage of two underage women and the harrowing trauma involved with that. And that may be true, but that's not the film that got made. Um, so yeah. I, 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 that lengthy setup is because I've seen about 11 or 12 of those films. And the slap in my face when this film started with like a theme song with a jaunty sax <laughs> and a title song that had Rita Sue and Bob too. Uh, w- there was a lot of what the fuckery going on. Um, it set the tone, though, didn't it? Though yeah, that it, song set so the tone very it well. It surprised the fuck out of me because I, if I'm not uh, picking the movie, I'm just watching one of your picks. I don't actually do any research on it whatsoever, as you can probably tell by listening to me talk about them. Uh, I didn't even know this was English, so when it came up and I looked right. at it and went, "Holy shit!" I'm my brain has had to completely reset because in my brain it was just some sort of like a, a Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice kind of thing going right, on. Right, yeah. And I have also, it's exactly yeah. like, but not in any way. <laughs> My wife is um, British and, and sort of semi-watched it while I was watching this, and she thought it was hysterical that I was watching this. And she said at some point, the acting's all very Grange Hill. And I said, what's that? <laughs> and she said, it's the best show ever made. I don't, you, somebody else will have to calculate the level of irony in that statement. There is so a bit of irony involved. but Grange Hill. There's yeah. some irony in that. Okay. Okay. So I now have a theme song in my head. Thank you very much for that, Sarah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, I did sort of 
say the plot summary of Rita Sue and Bob too, but I don't really think I communicated anything useful about it. Now I should say that this is as with all of Alan Clark's works, this is an adaptation of a play or a script. This is written by a woman named Andrea Dunbar, who may be familiar to a subset of people that hundred percent, I'm sure does not include skeet from uh, 2010's the Arbor, the debut film of uh, Cleo Barnard that played at the film festival that year. Um, she was a young playwright who grew up in a housing estate and she did a play called the Arbor, which was later adapted to screen. And then she did Rita Sue and Bob too. And then um, in 1990, uh, it was a really tragic year for people involved with Rita Sue and Bob too, because Alan Clark had gone to Hollywood and he was going to try to make it big um, doing a film that was originally called Assassination on Embassy Row and then An American Murder, which was going to be about a murder filmed from the assassin's point of view. Um, but while he was over there, he discovered he had lung cancer and came home and uh, passed away in 1990. Um, meanwhile, in 1990, Andrea Dunbar, who I believe was only 29, uh, yeah, she was born in 1961, uh, had a brain hemorrhage and also died. So um, so that's all very bleak. Well, she, had, uh, but, she had that brain hemorrhage in the same bar you see our first character walking out of in this movie. Oh my God! Really? Believe it or not. Oh yeah, yeah that's, what? It's the same, according to the trivia note I read, and that's I've only read that, so I haven't got multiple sources to back it up. But I said it with that. Oh, pub. Wikipedia has this as well. The beacon, yeah, the pub, the, the beacon. Yeah. yeah, she was in that same pub that, from the first shot of the movie, and when she had her, her brain hemorrhage and passed away. Oh God! Um, and actually, just sort of her um, Wikipedia in general is is where bleakness goes to like <laughs> grow itself. like if you hear hear about what's happened to her various daughters and things like that it's it ain't great and um but yeah so i was um i guess I, i'm curious to hear what you guys think and then i'll sort of get back because i've been talking for a bit um but um yeah so what did you guys think well i really enjoyed it i um I, Did you, was your enjoyment I, improved by watching it with your mom? I, well, as I've said, I've I've seen um, Tipping the Velvet or um, uh, with mum. So watching sexy stuff or whatever is effing and blinding, etc. Doesn't um, doesn't make any particular difference. There is mom literally a scene too. played in real time where Bob, who uh, is the father of a child that Rita and Sue babysit for, drives Rita and Sue up to a hill. Deflowers yep. Sue with Rita watching, and then deflowers Rita. Yeah, yes. that, I mean it's uncomfortable for the family. Says, Let's go to the Moors because when you hear Yorkshire and Moors, the, the word murder immediately goes afterwards because yeah. that's that's what happens on the Moors. <laughs> oh, true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, well, yeah. Was yeah. that the hawk and what have you was. Um, Active around that time, or was yeah, it eighty seven? The Yorkshire Ripper, and one of the one of the um, women that's actually in this film in an unspeaking role was one of the apparently one of the few uh, women to be attacked by the Yorkshire Ripper and survive. Maureen Long. Oh shit! So she's, I think she plays one of the schoolgirls in this one. Um, yeah, she, oh no, sorry, Rita's mother actually. She plays Rita's mother. So she oh, was actually attacked by the Yorkshire Ripper at on stage. Holy wow. Shit. It's, yeah. It was such a surprise, this film. I was expecting it to be, I mean, I, knowing the director, I I had a an expectation, which I'm sure you, you had even doubly so, Doug. Um, but I, yeah, it's, 
It's funny, and also, and what I think makes it work for me is how matter of fact it is. Yeah, and, and how the it's it's the girls that drive pretty much everything. Include and it's the uh, apart from that first part where um, where Bob is the one driving. Um, it's they they pretty much are along. Uh, they pretty much make the decisions and do. And and move thing the story along, but they are living in a complete environment of male violence. I mean, you have a uh, um, yes. Will, Willie Ross playing Sue's drunken dad, and you have uh, Aslam, the seemingly sweet boyfriend, who kind of winds up being confirmation bias of <laughs> the <laughs> yeah. the thesis statement that every male in this film is a is you know the the it's literally the, the male yeah. that winds up being the best one is the creepy guy across the street who's always watering the lawn and spying <laughs> on people <He's, laughs> he is the male hero of the film he's absolute mvp of this film he every time he appeared on screen he uh, was just I, so good Although he does, he does immediately call the the police once a minority walks in the neighbourhood, and then yes. enough gets proved right. In this case, it was justified, but he he didn't have any reason to call that in the first place. So that's that's a no, point off for him, even slightly. <laughs> yeah, this, the, for me, this movie harks back to a, a, other movies I'd seen from the eighties around that time because there's always this when British movies sort of got to the, the the taboo subject of SCX. There's always this kind of this awkwardness that the British films always seem to have, and you go back. Fair enough. You go back to the Carry On films, the the Nudge Nudge Wink Wink films. You get into no, the seventies. Let's, let's not go back to that. I know we, I'm I'm bringing back some bad memories for you, but then you get into the seventies and you get the real kind of everything's got to be super comedic with the Robin um, Asquith sex comedies and things. But in the the late eighties, it was definitely this kind of. I mean, it was the Thatcher years for a start. It was I mean, the, gritty, gritty realism. It's gritty, and there's and even the ones which were kind of more comedy dramas. I remember a movie called The Rachel Papers. With a very young uh, oh, Dexter yeah, Price. Sorry, Jonathan Price. Is it? Uh, who's, who's the? Oh actor? no, no, Dexter Fletcher's Dexter in there. Dexter Fletcher too. is in it, and I saw yes. it on video probably back in the in the you know when I was about sixteen or seventeen, and I remember it having this this particularly awkward kind of approach to to sex, even in a movie that kind of that was kind of one of the main themes on it. As, a, as an aside, Bob's wife, Leslie Sharp, is in the Rachel Papers. That's why it was sounding familiar to me. Yeah, so was, Leslie Sharp on to for a, a very storied career. She's she's done a, a heck of a lot of television and and done very very well for herself. Nice. Yeah, as but as I say, these the, the kind of the, the, the films that era definitely they, they that gritty realism of not sugarcoating what parts of England look like, and you know the. That really, you know, working class area of, of Yorkshire, which they wouldn't have had to, to do much work to, to make it look like that. They just would have found a place because the I mean, even the architecture of those, you know, the, the where the return to live is just the most depressing thing you've seen. The, the yeah. estates. And, and if you, you watch uh, Christine and Road, which incidentally, Leslie Sharp's in Road as well, it makes very similar use of what's clearly not uh, set directed locations. Yeah, and it's, it's it is nice how they show how the um, they show us the geography of the place and how there's so much walking. Yeah, the, the uh, long tracking shots and his um, his relationship. I've forgotten the guy's name, but uh, the fellow who was the Steadicam operator on this wound up working with Alan Clark through all his other films, and that became quite a signature of these very long takes of you know two, three, five minutes of just walking through 
places in and out of buildings. Uh, yeah, very. And somebody described it. It's like it's almost like they filmed the dress rehearsal. And um, <laughs> and, and, and that to me, the few scenes that are suddenly like go to sort of like, oh, we're shooting a close up and a reverse close up and stuff like I think there's a bit outside one of the council flats where they've shot it like that um, when a bit of a confrontation is going on. And it's just like suddenly feels like a different movie instead of this constantly nervous roving camera that's wandering around the house or the neighborhood with our characters. Yeah. As uh, over three films, I, I found it probably the most entertaining. It did had a few moments which glitched for me, like the end of it definitely glitched me, which apparently was not the original ending that oh, uh, no. Andrew Dunbar had written. And we won't go into that for spoiler territory, but it didn't, it felt false. It felt like a, it, that came from a movie from the 1970s, not the 1980s because you know, the, a lot of the UK movies in the eighties did tend to have downbeat endings. They did tend to, you know, as one of my friends uh, who's English used to always say, if, if if you always know it's a UK movie when somebody you like dies in it before the end of the movie, because that's what they happened in those 80s ones. They, they didn't flinch away from having having endings that didn't make you feel like you've been hugged by the movie, that sometimes you got a bit of kicking from the film. What I found about this film, though, is that it was because of that, because of the ending and various other things, it was very unpredictable. Mm. Uh, it just didn't. It didn't do what a an, a normal average film would do. And I, I usually I quote, have to like it sorry. for that. Yeah, I usually quote from reviews, and I didn't this time. But Ebert's review uh, mentions that he saw it twice, and both times um, he said that the audience felt seemed a bit kind of confused as to how much comedy to be. And I, and to be honest, I was as well because. It was Alan Clark, so I wasn't expecting any. And uh, <laughs> um, and I eventually warmed into the spirit of it. And also, so it kind of met me halfway because it kind of became clear that, you know, a lot of it's he's doing the same stuff with how he covers scenes and shoots scenes. It's just the music's a little different. Um, and, you know, a couple, I mean, but like that um, scene near the end where the two of them are inside the house and Sue's uh, Pakistani boyfriend is outside and um and they're you know it's just this one very long take and you're just watching it move on and on and and just the brilliance of the of the physical choreography of it with the camera work um and road which you know leslie sharp was in as well has some very similar brilliance so yeah i was able to find enough Kind of, kind of find the place where it met me as somebody who liked Alan Clark, but also somebody who could start appreciating the humor of it to yeah, a certain wa- degree. I watched it with with my wife. I watched it with Dawn, uh, and she had a you know a slightly different take on it, of course, because we're looking from her point of view. The, you know, for her, the the male lead in this film was was not someone that she would consider the male, the male hero, Bob. Was you know she she saw him exactly for what he was needy somebody yeah. you know who basically takes advantage of other people and you know it's it is at times a good comedy but at times you do want to kick George in the balls and just say just sack up and and you know you know admit to yourself that you are a bit of a bastard at uh, all these women because yeah. it's you know there's that's why I kind of I liked it but at times I didn't want to be watching George, uh, watching Bob. You know, I'd rather be watching something else. But for most of the time, I was entertained. I was entertained enough to the point where, you know, I never checked my watch the whole time. And suddenly it's like, oh, the movie's over. Okay, that's great. But I wouldn't go back and 
rewatch this on a yearly basis for the laughs because there really isn't. It's, there's some there's some gentle humor in there, I'd have to say. I actually laughed out loud a few times at some of the um, just kind of um, logistics of the two of <laughs> girls balancing their one lover, and especially when their one lover isn't up to servicing <laughs> either <laughs> of them, and just everybody's uh, kind of skew with um, uh, perceptions. I did I did find some humor. I, I laughed right. definitely like one stage, too, and you, I, you're going to guess what I laughed at, of course. And the, does Woods Black Lace mean anything to you? Oh, I, they did the, when the credits rolled around, but that that song, the yes. Song, <laughs> the Gang Bang. That's, yeah. Oh, my Lord. In any other movie, that would have been as about as out of place as possible, but it just it's it's very much the British approach to, to humour and sex on that one, where you've got Black Lace, famous for the, the wonderful chart-topping hit, Agadoo, push by... <laughs> pardon me, oh, push my God, is that... Push oh pineapple, shake the tree. That was their big song. Was Black Lace? I'm sure. Oh, but, I remember that song. And, but here Very they do well. the gangbang, and uh, with people doing the 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 sexiest conga line you've ever seen in your life <laughs> of the dance. <laughs> yes, I laugh at that stage because it was such a ridiculous bit. And um, <laughs> yeah. yes, that probably will be making it onto my uh, year year end uh, movie marathon disc at some stage. Oh, I'm good. Sure. I don't have to ask. <laughs> <laughs> now, um. I, I wonder if it would change Dawn's perception or not if uh, you, if she knew that Andrea Dunbar based this on a true story. Oh, she, yeah. So yeah. She, she was essentially the Sue character. She was and, the Sue character. Right. Um, and yeah, and again, as you've alluded to, uh, Alan Clark changed the ending to it, which is bizarre because he is not a man known for happy endings. <laughs> no. No, and to be <laughs> honest, you get characters that don't that deserve isn't. a happy ending, and you know, <laughs> Bob Bob didn't deserve a happy ending. Bob deserved yeah. to be down the bloody um, dole office, you know. And this is not a movie <laughs> that ages at all well in terms of uh, yeah, it's it's impossible to imagine this movie being made today on so many levels, but that's probably the main one. Mm. It's also there was a. It felt to me like there was an element of satire that they these were two bored women. And George is not a um, an Adonis of any kind. Uh, they they're just bored girls, and there's someone who's even slightly interested in them who has some money and a car. And I think they um, they yeah. went for him. As I said at the start of the movie, and they say, should we just be walking around town tonight? Well, what else yes, have you got to do? That's the one I was going to mention just yeah. now. It, it, I found that fascinating. They were just going to walk around all night because mm-hmm. that's all there is to do in fuck town nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> so do you guys know George Costigan, who plays Bob from something else? Because I didn't. Um, I knew him from uh, Shirley Valentine, which is an obscure thing to know anybody from. But he wasn't somebody who was especially familiar to me. Oh, no, is he the husband of Shirley Valentine? Uh, he's the um, he's one of the guys at the resort when she gets there who's complaining about the food not being like it is at home. Oh, right. He's also a villain in a Doctor Who episode. Yeah, I um, thought I that. Most of the things have been TV that he's done. Yeah, Max Capricorn and Voyage of the Damned, 2007. Yes, yeah. It's, <laughs> he's the metallic bad guy. <laughs> Oh, there we go. Well, it's good. They could have got Shokasugi. He would have been a wooden bad guy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's very specific. So we just got to find a third one. (laughs) As an aside, um, Siobhan um, Finneran, who plays Rita, reunited with um, George Costigan, who plays Bob in uh, the uh, TV show 
blah, 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 uh, Line of Duty. Oh, no, not Line of Duty. Happy Valley. Happy Valley, um, yeah. Yeah, which right. I haven't seen this British crime drama. So On Netflix, um, I think it is. Yeah, I've, I've seen it pop up a couple places. Somebody else was in Line of Duty, which is why. Oh, yeah, George Costigan's also in Line of Duty, which is how I've made that mistake. She was but, also in, in Doctor Who, but the new Doctor Who in 2018, because I think Doctor Who was kind of the English version of Murder, She Wrote. So eventually, if you've been in there long enough, you'll end up on Doctor Who at some stage. Yeah, well, there's Lee Sharp was in Doctor Who as well. So well, there you go. There's, there, look at that. How specific could this, could this connection have been? <laughs> all right. Do we need to get people who all appeared so, in the same episode of uh, Doctor Who for our next Oh, I could yeah, I could hunt that down easily. <laughs> the guy who was um, hosing the um, his garden down played a um, played a Sontaran, possibly. It's uh... <laughs> oh, that's potato shaming. <laughs> oh, as an aside, I looked up the dad, um, Rita's dad, or no, Sue's dad, who is possibly the drunkest character in the history of cinema. <laughs> um, Amazing. Willie God, Ross, and he um, he was originally, uh, that was one of his first roles on screen after having been part of a comedy troupe named Lambert and Ross. And then when they broke up, he turned to screen. And that was, um, I think his, I think he'd been on screen once or two, twice before. And then there was like a 15-year interregnum where he was touring and doing his things with Lambert. And that ended however it ended. And then, um, yeah, but it was one of those performances where I kind of went from this is too big to holy shit is this did they just actually go down to the council flat and get the drunkest guy they could find um because it's well, just his shoulders were amazing his whole physicality it's he he that's felt the thing. It so felt so lived in yes yeah, yeah it was and that's uh, something that's true about all Alan Clark is like it always feels really lived in and that's i mean because so many of those bbc dramas that he got would have a lot of time for rehearsal as well so that would be part of it and then also just a lot of his um insistence on shooting in actual locations you know and which you see with like the council estates there in rita sue and bob too mm. Is all that right <laughs> rita sue and bob too too this time <laughs> there's still three of them <laughs> on that note i think we've probably gone on long enough for an episode oh, i think we've gone on long enough for several episodes to be perfectly honest but <laughs> oh yes well you know um hopefully the next time we do this um we're recording this uh on a thursday before hopefully what will be a official announcement they're going to level three next wednesday so yeah so maybe we'll get to do an, one in person in october you never know it's, i mean you're... it's possible if you can show me vaccination certificates at the door on the way in, I'll be quite happy to host. Well, I'm double vaxxed, so that's easy for me. <laughs> I'm 50% I don't know there. that I'm convinced that um, 1987 is the best based on what we've seen. Yeah, Should we have another go at 87 at some stage? We could definitely <laughs> do that. Just watch Near Dark three times. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys haven't seen Street Smart, that would be a uh, be one to watch. Well, you know my pick. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be an interesting episode. I think we should wrap it up there, gentlemen. Take care yeah, and uh, see you all. Hopefully, literally see you all next time instead of just recording over uh, the internet. Hopefully. Nice. Excellent.